Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. Hello, I'm Sean Edry. It's a barbarian bunny busty broad bonanza in my brain pan, and I'm the only one invited. That's that's from what? Deadpool, Joe Kelly. Oh, classic. Uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and unusual source for comic books and pop culture critique, news, and reviews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, Greg Carpenter has a review called Shambling After the Mad Ones, Bob Dylan, Ellen Moore, and Jack Kerouac. That's a lot of drugs. That's a lot of madness. Mm-hmm. Also, if you like this podcast, if you like these articles and books, you should support us. Yes. Support us on Patreon. We do the heavy thinking, so you don't have to. Shall we move on to the news? Let's. So for once, Diamond is in the news for reasons other than they suck. Diamond recently held its annual retailer summit in Baltimore, and there were a few interesting bits of news to come out of that. Some of those were announcements for books, which I think we'll hold off on until they're actually solicited, and then we can talk about them properly. I want to start with Boom. Okay. Boom said something that troubled me deeply until they explained and then I was okay. So they began by announcing that they would be reducing their output by 15%. Immediately, you know, the sky is falling. Ah, run. So there's only going to be five ongoing Adventure Time series at the same time. Well, (laughs) this is what they said. And once they explained it, it sort of made sense. They said they are trying to focus their products rather than cannibalizing their audience by selling more books to the same people. They want to sell less books, but to a larger audience. And when they put it like that, I mean, I'm someone that has been enjoying a great number of boom books. Even the ones that don't really work out, like the fiction turned out to be not so great. We're going to talk about one of them later. Absolutely. And even when they fail, they're still interesting. And I'm still glad that they exist, you know, because it's a bit of variety. It's a bit of, of... atypical comics. And and I enjoy that. So when they said they were reducing their line immediately, I was like, crap. All of those wonderful four-issue miniseries, right? But I see the logic in what they're saying, because it's been a long-time criticism of the big two, right? Marvel and DC, that they are basically... Flooding the market. It's not just that they're flooding the market, they're flogging their readers. They are aware of the fact that they have a very consistent core group of readers who will never abandon them. And they pile every kind of stunt and marketing tactic on their heads. We'll discuss that shortly. Just to get more money out of the same group of people as opposed to trying to expand. So I applaud Boom for that measure, even though, you know, I understand why they're doing it. It still sucks that they are doing it because Boom and Image are two of the publishers who are really doing a great job of telling different kinds of stories. But the news wasn't all bad. Okay. Because they also announced that Giant Days would be an ongoing. Oh, God. It went from six issues to, to 12. 12 issues. Now it's an ongoing. It's great. That makes me angry. Why does that make you angry? Because I didn't buy the first issue because I said, I'll read it in collection. This is just a miniseries. It will still be collected. It'll just be collected. Yeah, but now I want to... Than you thought. But it now represents I... more of an investment now. Yes. Now I want to go on the issues. <laughs> they also announced... This is something that I want to talk about outside the context of the solicitations because they announced that Kyle Higgins would be writing Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Well, we knew there's, there was going to be a Power Ranger title. We didn't know it's going to be Kyle Higgins. Why should IDW have all the fun, right? 
Well, your definition of fun. I mean, which of the trillion Power Rangers is this? Because it's... no, no, they're going for the originals with the dinosaurs and the, uh, the Mighty Morphin. The, After ten thousand years, I'm free. I don't know what her name well, was. It's, the, it's the witch been, with it's the horns. Been, it's been long enough time, I guess. Oof. The nostalgia crowd for this now exists, but na- it's still in circulation, isn't it? Like, I mean, Power Rangers yeah, is still but, a show that exists. But Power Rangers thing is that every season there it's like a soft reboot yeah. and it's a completely different cast and completely different characters but then isn't that still i mean when you're talking about the nostalgia factor for something like gem gem has been gone for decades right yeah but it, it's a nostalgia the fact, turtles also but it's a nostalgia factor for this particular incarnation it's like x-men 92 right the x-men are still there even right. if you're not a comic reader they're there in other cartoons and other movies but people mm-hmm. are like This particular version of the those, X-Men. Those characters. Yeah, these Power Rangers. These are your grandpa's Power Rangers. And your grandpa, they really are. And your grandpa I'm, likes them. I, was I seven or eight when they started? I, I was. God. Um, Now, I have no nostalgia whatsoever But would this. you read this out of no. curiosity? Like, in terms of... No, it's... it's could, it, could it be another gem? It could be good. I'm What not, has Kyle Higgins been doing lately? I don't know. Isn't Kyle Higgins mostly an artist? Or am I mistaking him for someone else? I mean, if you are, that just goes to show that he's really well, not no, a Well, no, it's not his fault. Grant Morrison's Power Rangers. That I would read. <laughs> I mean, try and pick... What would that... I don't... Okay. Sophie uh, Gamble's Power Rangers. You think that's why she uh, why she took the break from no. Jen? She's going to go do some Power Rangers and like... No, no. Swirls of colors and explosions everywhere? Because that show That would was, be fantastic. It was low rent, but at the same time, this being the 90s, that was about as good as it got with the giant robots. And mm-hmm. the, I mean, it, you know, that's what you had in the days before CGI. True. So I don't even... Wow. Well, we'll see when it's launched. Maybe yeah. we'll even like, review are it. Are they going to retcon? What is there to retcon? This show had like... I dimly remember the original and it was like... You know how in the 90s they used to do those PSAs about like kids don't yes. do drugs? It was kind of like that. Because the show used to refer to them as like teenagers with attitudes and they had no attitude, no personality. no. And they were 30-year-olds, all of them. Well, that's the Dawson's Creek thing. That's that's going to go on forever. Like, we're never going to see any age-appropriate... The closest they got to is Tom see, Holland there being actually 19. has been uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers comics way back then, written by Fabian Nicieza. One of in Were one clones of, involved? I don't know. In one of these... Well, I'm getting paid for this, so I'll do it. Oh, God. You remember? That's the guy who wrote NFL Super Pro, after all. So he... He has no shame. Maybe Nicieza yeah. writing Power Rangers. See, there's two ways that that can go, right? It's either going to be one of those cheap knockoffs, or it's going to be like when he did the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and it's like, 2,000 years into the future, clones everywhere. Wow. So good luck to Kyle Higgins. You're yeah. going to need it. I mean, I don't know if... They may have miscalculated with the nostalgia factor. Well, here. we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. There was an interesting announcement from a publisher called Action Lab Entertainment, and yes. I'm not familiar with their work. I'm, fami- I'm familiar with some of their work. They do a wide range of stuff. Uh, not wide range because they don't have a lot of titles. It's really subdivided between kids stuff and really gross out humor stuff like uh, Pixie Bunnies, and they have a book called Holy F Star Star K. Why? Why? What? It's, it's a gross out What is thing. it about? I haven't read it. The Pixie Bunnies is just that cartoon from the 1990s. Uh, You're going to have to narrow it down. <laughs> with, you know, the really crazy one. 
Uh, still gonna have to narrow it down. Uh, Freakazoid? No, 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 no. About two friends and their animals, and it's really gross out. You're really not narrowing it down. That I I remember the name. Um, This was Disney? What was it? No, no. Warner. Animaniacs? No, worse. Even more gross out. Tiny Toons? No, the most gross out cartoon. Gross out Ren and Stimpy. Yes. Oh, so, so Pixie Bunny is basically Ren and Stimpy with bunnies. Ew. I no, like that. I don't. Yeah, but yeah. like, would you read it? I've read it. It's Ooh. fun. Uh, anyway, actually, you know, they're on the growth. So, well, and, this new promotion that they announced at Baltimore might put them on the map because what they said is they're offering a deal to retailers in which if you order a certain number of books in January, you get their entire February catalog for free. That's a big push. That is definitely a way to get attention. Oh. Image wishes, right? Like, wouldn't that be nice? But, well, it's not like they have a huge catalog, so you're not ordering 20,000 books. I think they right. I think they publish like 10 or 15 titles tops free. Yeah. To retailers. I mean, wow. Well, again, that's a good push and I think, you know, I don't read a lot of their stuff, but from what I've seen, some of it looks fine and it looks like something mm-hmm. it could sell to people. Good for you, and I'm, and, yeah, and I'm always happy for you know small indie voice making its move, trying to grow out. Yeah, really. When you think about it, the people who have potential for advantages here are the indie groups because Marvel would never do this. No, DC would never do this. Right? There are certain tactics that you can employ within the necessity for marketing and publishing and getting your stuff out there that the big two cannot do. So really, good well, for them, and I hope they, it works. They can, they just don't want to. Marvel's version of special offer is buy two, pay 200% for the third one. No, because I really feel like Dan Buckley's head would pop off his shoulders, burst through the ceiling, and land in a pool on Mars if they ever did anything for free that wasn't free comic book day. Even free comic book day makes him sweat. I, I know that that has to be true. So No, it's a good publishing push for them. They like yeah. Free Comic Book Day because they publish stuff they've already published or were about to publish anyway. Cheap bastards. Yes, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not like Arkea <laughs> that published for Free Comic Book Day, you know, all new material in a yeah, nice... It's like, here's 10 cover. pages mm-hmm. for free from a $5 comic that we'll be publishing later. Yeah. Uh, next... Dark Horse announced that they'd be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Aliens in. Well, they still fashion. own that, so yeah. Is, that, is that like the last one? No, they have Buffy too. I they, should, I Alien, Buffy, that. Predator, Hellboy. That's probably what the 30th anniversary is going to be: is Alien, Buffy, Predator, and Hellboy in the same room. I'd read it. Would you? I would. Depends. R- written by who, though? <laughs> I have well, to it's, ask. it's Hellboy, so it has to be Mike Mignola. Wouldn't it be interesting if Mike Mignola wrote Buffy the Vampire Slayer? No, because Joss Whedon's team i was doing a little bit of reading on that they have had weird people writing their books nicholas brendan the actor who played xander wrote a couple of arcs christos gage came in there at some what's point. weird about christos gage christos gage is fine is that the first name you think of when you think of buffy though i like christos gage i have no i problem. do too but not sure where that came from and then i think James Marsters did a couple of issues, and it's just like... Well, what's James Marsters is doing other than narrating Dresden Files audiobooks nowadays? I guess he sort of had that coming, though. Charisma Carpenter (laughs) is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That would just be like, you know, celebrating Cordelia. Although, if you want to talk about characters who got a rough deal... Okay, uh, Marvel will be publishing Mm. the Master of Kung Fu slash the Hands of Shang-Chi 
in four omnibuses. You messaged me this with like exclamation points because wow. Um, that's been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming because why would you? It was very well received when it was published in the 1960s and the 1970s. People liked it. It's the mm-hmm. 1970s version of a successful run like say Thor. Like Walt Simonson's Thor or Larry Hammond. Is it on that G. level, G. though? Well, I haven't read it because it's not being published. <laughs> no, but I mean, when you think about, like, Shang-Chi's contribution as a character, what even... When was the last time you heard of Shang-Chi doing anything? Well, what has he... no, they had a miniseries before Secret Wars. They had a... That pretty... was a Marvel Knights thing, right? No, 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 like, not old, old. Even two years ago, they had a four-issue Shang-Chi miniseries, which was pretty good. And the Battle World Chang Chi was also pretty good. It wasn't any excellent thing that blew my mind, but it mm. was fun. It was definitely up top in the unfortunately small scale of Secret War well, success. <laughs> yeah, we'll, but you we'll know, get to that. You know, there, there's a lot of nostalgia for that, and if it's okay. as good as people are saying, sure, why not? I mean, in an ideal scenario, speaking as an archivist, right? Speaking as someone who likes the idea of everything being collected. I guess it's not the worst thing in the world for Marvel to be aware of the fact that they have historical material and they can put them in these omnibuses and they can publish them and if you want to, buy them. If you don't want to, don't buy them, right? It's not required reading. This series ran also, for if, 125 if they If they manage to Gordian knot their way through this legal entanglement... Was there a legal entanglement with Shang-Chi? Yeah, because Shang-Chi was originally in comics the son of the Yellow Claw. Uh-oh. It's not just the racist thing, the yellow... No, no not the Uh-oh. yellow... <laughs> not, not, no, no, not the yellow clothes, sorry. That Eggman Chu? No, no, no. That historical... No, what was his name? Egg Fu? No, no. Historical pop figure, very famous, Dr. Fu Manchu. Oh, no. Shang-Chi, yes, yes. It was licensed from this sex Roma estate. No, not Fu Manchu. Yeah, so they had to run Why all Why not of... just retcon it, then? Well, yeah, but the thing is... In, in oh, in story, the, okay. So in, in the, the 1970s, comics, right. in the 1970s, okay. that character didn't belong to Marvel, so therefore it couldn't be reprinted. And I understood there were lots of other problems. I don't know, but yeah. that means we're one step closer to a completely reprinted Rom Space Knight, which was crazy and wonderful. Listen, you know what I'm going to say about Micro Space Knight? This is what I'm going to say about Rom Space Knight. We're living in an era in which Miracle Man will soon be completed. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. Anything it could be- happen. Zenith has been reprinted. Anything could happen. Let's be optimistic. And the sixth issue of Sandman Overture came out. Woo! We're going to be talking about that. Daredevil Bullseye the Target. No, they can still, keep that. Still not. Kevin still. Smith. They can yeah. keep that. We don't, we don't need that. Yeah. Okay. Next. But arguably the biggest news item at Baltimore and the one that made the, the most amount of noise, and I'm not sure if it was for the right reasons, is that image... Let me frame this properly. Okay? So at an industry panel... Featuring representatives from the top five publishers. These are Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, IDW, and Image. Image's director of retail sales, Corey Murphy, dropped the mic by announcing that within the next year, Image will no longer be doing variant covers. I wish I had been specifically a fly on that wall. Just like, <gasps> specifically, no longer offering single-issue retailer exclusive covers. Right. Which is really the... I mean, when people say variant covers, that's the shorthand, right? Mm-hmm. The, the gimmick that gets retailers to order more books than might otherwise sell. Yeah. So that they could charge more for the premium covers. Which is a scummy tactic. 
And for a while there, it seemed like it had gone out of fashion in the early 2000s, and then it came back. And oh, yeah. Marvel brought it back, right? Not just, but, you know, Star Wars number one had 100 variant covers, something ridiculous <laughs> like that. And naturally, you always have people like Dynamite and Avatar. Oh, God. Dynamite made a career out of it, I think. Avatar had leather skin one. Ew. Yes. For Neo Namicon? No, no, no. Uh, I think it was uh, Extinction Parade. Oh, God. Not baby, though. Not a human baby. Oh, Yet. Can't. Yet. Yeah. They're, they're saving that for, well, the, for I their imagine, anniversary. No, issue. I imagine a baby variant, which is literally inside a baby. We fed this comic to a baby. Ew. And we shipped a baby to you. Well, that does sort of describe rather accurately most of Avatar's output. So <laughs> I assume that that's how they make their comics in the first place. Opening but in up any the event, baby. So this was sort of a shockwave. The thing that made it really hilarious was that Marvel's representative immediately after this announcement was like, well, we're doing hip hop variants, but we'll make them easier to order. And like, you can hear the crickets. Like, have you read the, <laughs> the Althauser's uh, announcement about this? No. They announced it as Image decides to anger variant gods. <laughs> other company managers trying to throw other people to the volcano in order to please the, the oh. angry gods now. Which appears to be the thing, because really, exclusives have become sort of a self-feeding machine in the industry. The publishers do it because the retailers buy it, and the retailers buy it because the publishers are publishing it, mm-hmm. and nobody has the guts to simply say, well, up until now, saying no. And when you think about it, it makes the most sense for Image to do this, because they are not known for they don't their variant need, covers. They don't need it. They don't this. need it. Yeah. It's a tactic that has become so mainstream, we've just gotten used to it. Much like anything else in the industry that's problematic, yeah. we're just sort of like, well, what are you going to do? It is what it is, right? Don't buy the variants. But... Image really doesn't need it, and I never understood why they... I mean, it's not that every comic they put out has a variant cover. No. But when they do do it, it's sort of like, well, why? I mean, your books sell and have very loyal readers well, for specific reasons, because, not Yeah, variants. because they did, because everybody did it. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can do, I guess, some artistically interesting things with variant covers. Yeah, but... But if, but if it, you do that, yeah, and then you turn it into, you have to order 50 issues of the yeah. regular one to get the special and, variant. And if it was it's so interesting and so vital, you would have done it as the regular cover. Exactly. Unless, where was a situation where a variant cover had artistic merit? Where there was point to it? To the, Has that ever happened? To the variant or to just... you To doing, having a variant cover in the first place. Like, an, an issue comes out with two covers, but it means something. It has some kind of significance. Well, no, it has no meaning. You know, some of them are very pretty. The Boom had a whole art book. Oh, God. Simply for Adventure Time variant covers. And it's beautiful. It's, their Adventure Times variants, all their variants are but, ridiculously but nice looking. But that's the thing. If you want to do a book of variant covers, I, again, like, I don't well, know... Well, you, you need to pay somebody to do the variant covers... Of course. ...before you publish the but book. But I don't... The existence of variant covers in and of themselves would not be a problem if it weren't for the problematic ratios. Like, the prerequisite for getting a variant cover is forcing a retailer to basically gamble on whether or not a comic can be sold, right? Because if you're ordering 50 copies of, I don't know, Marvel number one, for example, and then you sell one copy, and that person later jumps out a window and dies... Then you're stuck with 49 copies and the one special variant cover. Maybe you sell the variant cover, but it doesn't make up for And it also means that you probably don't order from the indies as much because... 
you know, you have a, st- a shelf full of these variants. But then again, retailers buy them because they sell. <laughs> How, yeah. and, and they sell because the public or parts of the public really want it. And we can talk smack about speculators all we want, and we want to, and we will. But if... Like, were no lessons learned from the fall of the 90s? Did we not learn anything? What I need now is for Marvel to start putting out chromium foil covers again. Oh, you... That's what I need. You said it. You've... It's going to happen. It's going to happen. No, but but we knew that it was coming, right? Like, any second now, we're going to find out that Ultimates Number 1 is going to have a hologram cover... Where Galactus, if you turn it in a certain way, turns into Squirrel Girl. That's TC had this 3D covers two years ago. That was that. Well, there you go, right? Yeah. So I applaud this move by Image. Good for Image. Lead the way. I think if you want to make the artistic argument that it's nice to sometimes you see Sophie Campbell doing an, an alternate cover, right? Sometimes Mike Del Mundo does an alternate cover. Fine. But if you're going to do that, you sell it at the same rate as the original but you say okay you can have as many of either well, of these no no, as you no. Want. some publishers are doing it booms variant covers does are... that what boom does yeah they're very that's co- fine they're variant covers are simply one of the problems with variant covers aside from charging more is that it's it becomes sort of a way to confuse the reader because you have to fill out these forms of what do i want what do i want what are and you have like adventure time one adventure time one a one b one c one okay. d one z you know it's Isn't more that confusing though because well, it's, then it's, it's like it's just throwing more work at people and and think no, but a retailer, for example, I and then think about when they're resoliciting stuff. So you, I want to order for next month. I have Adventure Time One A, Adventure Time Two B, Adventure Time One C, Adventure Time One D. Right, and you have dozens of this, and you have to do it for every single title. That's what the retailer has to do. It's work. It's more work. It's more work. You can't just. And, but and I they think don't if, if you're enough of a of a collector to no, be it's not for the collector. Specific. It's it's for the retailers. I'm not I a hope retailer. it works for know. Image. I hope it works out for Image because they have the ability, much like Action Lab, right? They are in a position where they can dictate certain trends that Marvel and DC do not have the gonads to do, right? This mm. you would never in a million years is Joe Casado going to come up and say, you know what? We're not doing crossovers anymore. I'll get to that in a minute. We're not doing uh, variant covers. We're not doing, I don't know, like those scummy tactics that they always take. And when you hear about it, you always shrug your shoulders because it's DC and Marvel. What are you going to do? Uh, shall we speak about Mr. Miller? Mark Miller's Search for Talent. Does not begin at home. That's not a TV show. <laughs> that's not a reality TV show Ooh. yet. Give him time. <laughs> yes. Uh, Mark Miller announced that he will accept writing and drawing samples on his website, Miller World TV, mm-hmm. and he will then pair six writers and six artists to create short stories featuring his own personal characters, and the teams will be paid industry page rate and will have the work published next year in the first annual Miller World New Talent Showcase, which all the proceeds will go to the Hero Initiative, which... Okay. Wait. That part, I'm okay with. Yeah, Mark Miller, you know, say what you will about him. And And I will. And we do, and we will. Yes. He contributes a lot to the Hero Initiative, to the CBLDF. He moves a lot of money for charity. And therefore, you know, good on you. But... However... This is not Mark Miller's first search for talent. Not even remotely. This is apparently his third time at bat... Looking for people who can write better than him, which you wouldn't think would be that hard. The reason that this is not worthy at all is that this is the third time that Mark Miller has tried to run a contest of some kind. Mm -hmm. The first time 
was for his magazine Clint. Ha ha ha. That's a topography. Get gag. it? Yeah. Because the L and the I in comic look often. Like a yeah. U. yeah. Yeah. Get it? Yes. Ha uh-huh. ha. Okay. He announced a contest in which the winners would end up being published in the magazine. The first round of winners got through. The second ones, the winners were announced, and then there was radio silence. No one even bothered with well, the third Clint wave. Well, pretty much disappeared off the shelves. So Good. that's also... Good riddance to bad rubbish. Sometimes the industry works properly. There was sort of a bright side to the first contest in that the winners who weren't published ended up grouping all their stories together and going on Kickstarter, and it worked fantastically. It came out. Everything was great. Okay. Then there was... A second contest, which was for a variant cover for Starlight, he offered $300 and, I quote, exposure. Which, when it's Mark oh, Miller, yeah. you might want to check that he means the same kind of exposure as what, what you think it means. Because I, I worry about that one. All the winners will be sent to the frozen ice to die in the cold alone. Or be accosted by, like, a naked Scottish man. I don't know. Or and both. It, or or both simultaneously. <laughs> And apparently this pissed off a lot of artists within the industry because it wasn't entirely clear to me whether it was because the rate was very insulting, like $300 well, for a for, cover. For a cover, for a successful book, by a top-rate yeah. uh, name. And That's you know, not even and the when, industry, right? Yeah, right? and whenever you say exposure as a payment, that's bad. Yeah. If someone is getting paid, well, the artist should get paid. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why Duffington Post is so annoying other than all their bad stuff is that you have someone making a lot of money, Ariana Huffington and her cohorts or whatever, and you mm. have all the writers doing the actual job and they get exposure. Bupkis. Bupkis. Take your exposure to the banks. And that even out. that competition didn't really succeed. Bleeding Cool had to basically badger Miller into remembering. Now... Yeah, because he has a tendency to forget about yeah, the yeah, contest and it's as not, soon as it's and over. One of the things. It appears to be from the side... Nothing evil is going on. It's not like Mark Miller is abusing these kids or whatever. It appears to be well, actual forgetfulness. Well, like, he's like a bumbling doctor in one of those old cartoons. Like, whoa, whoa, I forgot what I was doing. Which is what not are you as basing bad as that Malice. On, though? Hmm? What are you basing that on, though? Well, the first thing is that all the proceeds actually do go to charity when they come out. Okay. So he's not, he's not trying to pocket any money. And he doesn't need to. He's not... Mark Miller, at this stage, is a huge name and he has... Some of right. the better and best known artists in the industry, you know, say what you will about his He's works. He's not eating cocaine and sniffing caviar, yeah. I'm say sure. Say what you will about his works. Mark Miller can always get the best artists for his books. Yeah. So he doesn't need it. He's not like some con artist who lives no, on the margin. No, no, no. Mark Miller is very successful. And I think he really does. He thinks he's trying to do good. He just doesn't succeed. Do you think in- what happens is that when he gets these submissions, he looks at them. And then he's like, these people are all better than me. I can't have them get published i mean well was, but then you'd never accept well, anything from anybody yeah well up until now it was art stuff so right Pops again mark miller does enough stupid stuff that you don't need to invent invent yeah. bad things or inflate the bad things that he did in order to mock his works right and as a person his works mock themselves yes really. and as a person mark miller is apparently a very fine upstanding guy who helps fellow creators tries to help young up-and-comers who gives tons of money and promotion to charities well-deserved charities. Okay. So I'll give him that then. Yeah. We can mock his work. We do not need to mock Mark Miller as a person. There is no shortage of people in the industry who are, to put it bluntly, disgusting. Yes. And Mark Miller might not be one of those. He doesn't appear to be one Because we all know who they are. 
And I, I can understand that logic. Sean, just, I'm sitting right here. Really, you don't no, have to talk about me behind I'm my not back. Ta- Listen, <laughs> did you see that picture of Frank Miller from the Sin City 2 okay. premiere? Uh, Looking like Freddy Krueger's anorexic cousin? Not, 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 there you go, right? Uh, Robert Englund should sue for copyright infringement. But that's a whole other story. And Wes Craven just died. He just died, and I have to see this. And so... The issue with this contest is it does seem to be more of an issue of sloppiness Mm -hmm. in the sense that if you are going to make... Although when you think about it, doesn't that really characterize Miller's writing? Sloppiness. Lots of of noise, no real follow-through, right? Sound and fury signifying nothing. There you go. Speaking on behalf of the smorgasbord, which is really just you and me, but, you know, we're an an institution You're empowered to speak on my behalf. We are an institution at this point. The smorgasbord would like to offer... It's Delicious Cupcake Award for Commendable Behavior in the Comic Book Industry to Chip Zdarsky. Zdarsky received the nomination from the Harvey Awards, specifically the Humor Award the for The Special Award for Humor. Special Award, award for Humor. Which, yes. you know, it's Zdarsky's special. That's yes. absolutely true. Uh, for Sex Criminals. He wasn't happy about it, though, and he said this very clearly because the nomination didn't officially recognize Matt Fraction as Zdarsky's co-contributor. This would not have been as big a deal, except Zdarsky won the award. Now, he deserves it. He won the award after telling them, I do not want this award. Right. Which is... And they replied, that's not our call to make, which, are you guys not the ones who... <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we'll get into Somebody's in voting for you, we don't know who. But what makes the story is that he declined the award, which is not a small thing to do. You know, the Harvey Awards, they're not... I mean, how would you place them in relation to the Eisners in terms of significance and relevance? Uh, they're supposed to be the Emmys to the Eisners Oscar. In they, theory. In theory. They don't appear to be that. I had to actually look at the list of winners to remember, you know, who won the Harveys, which is not a good sign. You know, I could name uh, Eisner Award winners off the top of my head. Right. And he would have turned this down if it were an Eisner too, though. No, like with I, him, it was an issue of principle. I remember, you know, in years past, there have been lots of argle-bargle about the RV nomination process, mm-hmm. about ballot stuffing and about undeserving awards-winning nomination, you know, which played against the movements in one particular year. How? How does that happen? I don't know. May, uh, reprints. <laughs> which played which, against the movements? But uh, when you look at the actual winners... Who won? <laughs> the movements. Okay, it, faith in you. No, no, no. Restored. When you look at the actual list of winners, at least for the big categories, mm-hmm. there's nothing offensive there. Like, last year, uh, Best Writer was... Brian K. Vaughn, of course, for Saga, and the year before that it was Brian K. Vaughn for Saga, deservedly so. And you can see, you know, in artist Fiona Staples for Saga. Okay, so I'm guessing they have a favorite. Yeah, here's the thing: if you look at it, there really seems to be a wow. process. Yeah, like bone, Jeff Smith, bone, bone, bone. Yeah, Jeff Smith won for best cartoonist five years running. Ellen Moore won for best writer three years running. Charles Burns won best inker. Three years running okay. for, uh, what was the name of that thing? Um, Black... Black Hole. Yes, Black Hole. Which is a deserved winner, but once something has become apparently entrenched in the minds of the Harvey Award... They just keep voters, pushing that yeah, same button. Yeah, they right. just keep pushing the same button okay. again. So you see the same names over and over and over again. Best Inker, 1988, L. Williamson, 1989, L. Williamson, 1990, L. Williamson. And it's all wow. L. Williamson for Daredevil. It's not even different projects. It's the same <laughs> thing. And then you have a break for Jaime Hernandez and then Al Williamson for Spider-Man 2099. Yeah, I wasn't super familiar with them, but I knew that something was weird about yeah. this. Because when I was going over the nominations list, there was a category in which 
James Asmus and Fred Van Lente were nominated twice in the same category, and one of them was James Asmus and Fred Van Lente for The Delinquents. We remember we talked earlier this year about their best new talent. Jen Van Meter was nominated for Best New Talent. That was them, yes. right. Newcomer. So there's some weird stuff going Again, on with them in general. Again, 2006 Harvey Award winner Jen Van Meter nominated for Best Talent in 2015. Wow. I don't know, maybe they have a time machine? No, I think they have retrograde amnesia. It's like, what was the name of that movie? The, Memento. So yes. They give the awards it's backwards. Again. That's what it is. Okay, so, so that's it. So the Harvey Awards just, can be worthless. They're not, they're not hurting. No, the thing is they're not hurting anyone but themselves because Chip Zdarsky has the recognition he needs. What they're doing now is they're he proving the worth. more though. Yeah, what the Harvey is doing right now is they're proving the worthlessness of the Harvey Award. So, no, who cares I about mean, it? The thing that bothered, because I was reading through this, and Zdarsky just wrote like this really heartfelt message that he appreciated receiving the award, but at the same time, he could not accept it without saying, you know, Matt Fraction is a big part of why Sex Criminals <laughs> is as successful and as popular as it is. The weird thing here that I just did not understand is that The people who vote for these awards are industry professionals. Mm-hmm. Do they not understand the relationship between writer and artist? Is this I, a new thing for them? Who are these professionals that they don't know that Fraction's contribution to the book is... Well, who, see, who looks at Watchmen and says, who needs Dave Gibbons anyway? Well, see, I think these people have read Fear Itself and they were like... I do not think Matt oh, Fraction... Oh, you think co- he's paying the karmic? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. No, no, it's not karmic. It's like, <laughs> I do not think Matt Fraction contributes to the humor because humor is a human concept. And having read Fear Itself, I do not uh, believe that Matt Fraction to be one of us humans. I believe he's some sort of transcendental alien being from the planet Zargon. Ooh. That would explain Odyssey. That really would explain. <laughs> I mean, now that you think of... Well, Okay. So, and only humans can win the RV, which, you know... A <laughs> that's bit, a sensible it's, rule. It's a bit speciesist, but it sensible. Is. We can live with that. So, it was a solid move for Jeff Starsky. And I hereby officially forgive him for the Jerry Curl on Doom. <laughs> Chip, you are forgiven. <laughs> well, I'm Curl. sure he cares about our forgiveness. The Jerry Curl... No, no, no. The Jerry Curl was... I mean, the Geneva Convention specifically said no Jerry Curls after 1980. And he did it. But that's okay. Now, with this... You're okay now. Okay. Now, something very unusual. Good news from Marvel. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, Quite a few, actually. So here's something that'll put a smile on your face. And it's crazy how this turned out. IGN was talking to Gendy Tartakovsky, creator of such famous products as Samurai Jack, the first Star Wars The Clone Wars. No, it's Star Wars Clone Wars without the V. That's how you know the difference. Oh, God. Yes. Well, okay. So that one. And Symbiotic Titan. Yes. Which you love and I can't stand. Yes. So, okay. Because I'm right and you're wrong. Okay. Uh, we'll, yes. we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> Now, it turned out that Tartakovsky had been commissioned to put together a Luke Cage miniseries for Marvel in 2007. The project was stalled for some reason. My guess would be, was that not around the time that Jamis left and Buckley came in? Maybe. Or was this when Disney... When did Disney buy Marvel? No, no. Disney bought Marvel like five years ago. Okay, so that probably had nothing to do with it. But it, for whatever Mar- reason... Marvel sometimes lose stuff. You remember that Andy Watson tennis miniseries, 15 Love, yeah. which was lost in the back of a cardboard for five years and somebody found it like, oh, we should publish this now because and it's really, there. And really, in the digital age, do you not scan your stuff? 
do you not have backups? Well, I... 2007 was before uh, scanners. Out. No, but before Comixology was a big thing. Before no, forget Comixology. I'm talking about like you know, how do you lose your stuff in a couch? Somebody <laughs> deleted the mail. I don't know. <laughs> in any event, it's Marvel. It turned out that what he told IGN at the time was that he had actually written and drawn most of the series, and that from his perspective, he'd be perfectly happy to resume working for Marvel and putting it out. Having heard this, fans immediately bull-rushed Tom Brevert's Tumblr, and Brevert expressed an interest in seeing the series published, saying that Tartakovsky could contact him. This might actually happen, and... I Possibly so. in time for Luke Cage's Netflix series. I hope so. It's it's a well. It's going to be good because right. it's Andy Tarkovsky. I now, like the preview work. art did. There is a catch here. The preview art is very very specifically 1970s, 1970s Luke Cage. So he's got the yellow shirt and the chain belt and the hair and the hair and all of that. So really, it does seem that it's sort of retro, and I don't know if Marvel. Are interested in doing? Do they have anything coming out now that's retro, Luke Cage? Well, the Secret Wars have featuring retro many things. The Secret Wars Blade starring uh, vampire thing was specifically 1970s Blade with the afro, with and the, the afro, with hey, the afro and the that. wooden stakes. Yeah. You're kidding? Yes. So they wouldn't be in principle opposed, opposed to it. To, there well, is I no reason for this not because, to exist. because you know it's a side project. It's they publish it for the fans of. Of specifically of Tarakovsky's style. Yes, but so at you the can same do time, you know Marvel's. Uh, they can even call it Marvel's Elseworlds. Or what if Luke Cage was still in the nineteen seventies? Or what? They have to. I mean, yeah. th- this I don't whole care battle if, world thing seems to. Have as far as I'm concerned, they anyway. can call it Power Man. They could call him Iron Fist. I want right. to see Tarakovsky's Luke Cage. Yeah, we want it. Well, I think it's called Cage Exclamation Point, which makes as much sense. Ma- makes sense. Yes. Makes perfect sense. I want it. I'd like it sooner rather than later. Have you noticed, though, that in terms of promoting the Netflix series, Marvel haven't really done much? Because I was thinking, like, this would be great to time it with the release of Luke Cage's Netflix series next year. Yeah, no one But then, going, no one where's Jessica look... Jones? Yes. The Jessica Jones Netflix series airs November 20. As far as I know, there has been no reprints of Alias. There's no... No, they're doing an omnibus. They're reprinting the omnibus. Oh, Okay. But really, there is no ongoing... Is she in Secret Wars? Have you seen... Because you've been I reviewing like, uh, all the Secret Wars. Well, stuff. not all of it. I don't remember her in Secret Wars. Okay. I think Jessica Jones is Bendis' character. Like, he has his hold on her. Bendis is in good no, with Marvel. Heinberg used him. In Young Avengers, she turned up. Yeah, but, you know, as a side character, right? Yeah. Not, not as a main... Oh, like an actual... Yeah. Mm. They won't do a starring Jessica Jones thing unless Bendis is writing it and Bendis is busy. I think he's done with her, though. Yes, I don't think he'll want someone else to play with her. And unlike the Frank Miller Electra thing, Bedness is still in goods with Marvel. So when he says, yeah. don't do it, they'll, they'll respect him. They'll just won't touch it. Which is too bad because... Well, I don't think so. I think Alias was especially it. To, no, but especially today in Marvel's current configuration, it's always good for them to announce that they have another solo female superhero title but and jessica jones is about to explode like i've seen the teaser trailers for the netflix show it's gonna be good they understand yeah, but do you is. but do you really want a second rate alias continuation slash knockoff we already had that that was the pulse i figured if i made it through the pulse i can make it through anything <laughs> i mean the pulse was really really fine bad. but yes uh gandy tartakovsky please contact tom brevert at 
Tom Brevert's Tumblr or whatever. I mean, we have email. How hard can it be to Throw get Throw a brick through his window, Gandhi. Send him an email. Be like, hello, I am Gandhi Tartakovsky. After Brevert stops like, squee! Then you can see, I'd like to publish. Yee! Is it okay? Yeah. Yee! And then, you know, just go. Do okay. it. Okay. Other Marvel news. No, no, no. You, you'll do that okay. one. So because, I, because my ability to say English names but is... But we are the smorgasbord. And we are known for mispronouncing names. And it's cool. That's our thing. So, okay. Marvel have chosen Tanahisi Coates to write Black Panther. This is a best-selling author and self-professed Marvel superfan, which I have to give him credit. Not a lot of people would admit that in this day and age. Well, 1970s, 1980s. I mean... Well, he ooh. even reads nowadays Marvel. Ooh. Uh, anyway, but the thing is, he's an author, but he's not a fiction author. No. Coates writes nonfiction. He writes mostly for the Atlantic, and he writes mm-hmm. books about reparations for slavery. In fact, his work on the Atlantic is what brought him to Marvel's attention because he conducted an interview with Sana Manat about diversity in comics. And Marvel was like, hmm, this man seems interesting. And with the upcoming Civil War film set to feature Chadwick Boseman as Black Panther, it makes sense that Marvel would go for a big announcement and... The problem, well, I say the problem. The question that I'm having here is that I really want Coates to be another Christopher Priest and not another Reginald Hudson. Yes. Now, when you said big announcement, it's really huge because Marvel announced an ongoing series mm-hmm. that starts with a 12-issue story arc. Yes. So they basically promised right now that this won't be canceled in five issues. Oh, that doesn't mean anything. Which is Marvel. what Marvel is doing. That's, that well, doesn't mean a damn thing. No, no they because they're shunning... It's not just some ongoing series. They're shutting a light onto themselves and saying, this is our big for diversity. This is our push. This is a major writer. If they cancel this after five issues because the sales aren't very good, they're in for a world of internet pain. This would be a storm, and rightfully so. Because would that stop them, though? No, it wouldn't stop them, but it would hurt them. So they guaranteed a 12-issue series. And that's a not huge only problem. Did, not only did they guarantee that, they actually went into detail about what the story is about, which suggests that at the very least they have the scripts. Mm-hmm. That this is not something that he's going to start... Like, he's not going to be Damon Lindelof, right? Where he starts writing two issues and then he goes off to do something else and you never hear from him again. Or Alan Heinberg. Coates' work is going to be about a revolution in Wakanda, which mm-hmm. is in subject interesting because one of the problems of superhero universes is that they still have this thing for kings and queens and you know Aquaman is the king of Atlantis and almost nobody stops and asks so are the Justice League basically promoting regency and royalty and not the Justice League of America is Who looks at Aquaman and thinks that he's a paragon of anything though well no but Justice League of America are working with a non-democratic ruler who doesn't recognize, you know, free speech or whatever, I don't know. But he's not a despot. No, he's not a despot, but... It, Unless he is. I mean, well, it depends on the you story. You know how it goes with him. I see that argument. Like, I see what that means. It's something to work with. Yeah. Now, I, like I the idea that someone like Captain America could work with a monarch who was not elected democratically. Right? Yes, and has no plans to... Not anytime soon. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, you know, the challenge thing is that he's not only a monarch, he's a very proud monarch. He's like... I'm proud of my lineage, I'm proud of what my people are doing, I'm proud of and what my father is. a good monarch. 
Yes. That's all. I don't know if Priest did this or if he, it's just a comparison that came up when you compare him to Doom. Yeah, Priest did this. He did it, right? There was a story arc later in the series about the political turmoil in the Marvel Universe. Mm. So, you know, you had Wakanda versus the Deviants versus Latveria. So No, so but it's like that's also versus Can- Doom versus Canada for all countries. Because Doom, depending on the writer, has always been shown as for all of his evil, he is a good ruler of his people. Right, that he genuinely loves that. That's area. one of these depends of the story. It, it does. It's like he likes the country, but do the people like him? Again, it depends on the story. And they love depends. him. They don't love yeah, him. Yeah, uh, they're brainwashed to like him. They Mark Wade actually tried to do something with that when the, uh, in his run, but yes. it got a little messy at the end. So, but it's going to be interesting, and it's it one is. of the things we. I'm going to review this, and I'm going to oh, read yes. this. Oh yes, yeah. we're going to talk about this when it comes out because it's an angle. That, usually, when you say politics in the Marvel universe. We have, I think, based on past experience, just cause to be concerned because that's where you get Civil War, the original comic, right? Be- because where, comic where superheroes... Captain America was defeated by firefighters. Uh, co- because comic superheroes aren't built for the subtleties of real-world politics. Mm. So unless you want to make some big statement, General Serena, you know, I'm loyal to nothing, General, except the dream, which is fine, but you can't go too intricacy. You can't say, well, what's Captain America's opinion about gun rights? Mm. What does Iron Man think about the government forcing him to pay? Oh, he's fine with it. You know, uh, he's totally cool. No, with... Uh, Lock them all up. With the Obamacare. What, what, does Tony <laughs> Star- what does Tony Stark think about Obamacare? We don't know, and we probably shouldn't we know. We shouldn't know. Because it, like, yeah, it, it wouldn't work. It's a very subtle, difficult issue, well, which also, doesn't work with a guy in an iron suit shooting laser from his hands. It also brings up the thing that people don't want to deal with when they talk about, oh, I want to write a political story about a superhero universe. It's like, But you also have to acknowledge that politics would not work the same way in the Marvel Universe that they do in our world. For example, the whole discussion about reproductive rights takes a somewhat different approach when you realize that in this universe, mutants can be born. Because there is a whole topic of discussion, like, do you abort a child if... They have Down syndrome. That's the topic of discussion. You don't know quality of life, whatever. It's like, well, suppose he can set himself on fire. How does that work, right? It's like there are all of these implications of living in a superhero universe and how that would affect politics. And in fact, this is why Mark Miller's Civil War was such an abysmal failure because they tried to take the War on Terror and Guantanamo Bay and just apply them as is to the Marvel Universe without acknowledging... But these things don't work that way in the Marvel Universe to begin with. Because you are living in a city where you know for a fact that Norse gods are flying around, right? So what's religion in the Marvel Universe? Mm-hmm. You know that there are celestials who create planets. You've presumably looked up Galactus's skirt when he landed in Madison Square Garden. I don't know. It's like even the everyday person in the Marvel Universe is not like us. So... Well, because superhero universe, once you think them over, the large universes don't work because they're a patchwork of dozens and hundreds of creators working over dozens of years and always working from the basis of this is the real world, but simply adding stuff onto it without ever acknowledging all the changes. Who is it that used that tagline, the world outside your window? Stanley. Is that Mark? That was Stanley. Stanley. Okay. So, yeah, it's like that's the principle of it. And that's okay when you are not zooming in on specific issues. If you don't talk about politics, it's okay to sort of paper it over and say, yeah, our worlds are similar, whatever. But, like, healthcare in a world where you have healers, Mm. what do you do with Privacy issues with telepaths. Yeah. 
the first X-Men film made that comparison between gun registration and mutant registration. And it was like, when you frame it like that, it sort of makes I'm more for, sense than I'm they for, want it to. I'm for mutant registration. Because yes. then it's like, you're undoing the illusion. Yeah, the metaphor doesn't work when you look at it too closely. Mm-hmm. Mutant registration in the real world is a great idea, but we don't live in the real world. And the point that the writers of the X-Men for all these years weren't trying to make about registration, they were trying to make it about racism, which is right. fine. They just needed to do it in superhero universe and therefore superpowers. Exactly. It just it mutated too far. Yes. Along. However, the one instance where it could work is when you talk about Wakandan politics specifically. Because it's because a fictional, it's a fictional co- nation. Yeah. Because it's a nation that as its premise exists in a world that Wakanda was never enslaved. There were no slaves taken from Wakanda. So there is this whole entire realm that you can build from the ground up. And in that sense, anything Coates wants to do within Wakanda, I feel like, doesn't involve picking at that illusion, unspooling the threads. Speaking of Marvel and its difficulty to adapt to everyday life... Okay, let it out. It's time for our semi-regular feature, Oh Marvel. Oh Marvel... Editor-in-Chief Axel Alonso recently made a guest appearance on the Andy Greenwald podcast, in which he announced that there is another event being prepared after the Secret Wars. Wars. You know what this reminded me of? Two things. First of all, you remember Nightmare on Elm Street 5? No. There was this girl that Freddy kills by overfeeding her. Okay. So that's pretty much what's going on over here. I want to quote him here. He said, A lot of meat on its bones that really speaks to the world right now in the zeitgeist of the day. Something that we think everyone will relate to, that reads a comic book, that watches TV, that has an iPhone or a Blackberry. Who has a Blackberry anymore? Never mind. We're slowly whittling that down to the story we're going to be very proud of. I can't give you an estimated date for it because we're not forcing it. Uh Uh-huh. But again, it's something we're being patient with. First of all, what is this obsession with meat? DC wants meat and potatoes. Marvel has meat on the bones. Eat a vegetable, you goddamn cavemen. Second of all, Secret Wars isn't even over yet. And yet Alonzo is giving us like Chris Tucker in The Fifth Element. A thousand lollies, a kamali, that coochie, coochie, coo. (laughs) All night long, all night. So really, this is coming on the heels of Alonzo admitting that they didn't know how long Secret Wars was supposed to run. And Jonathan Aikman's like, I gave you the charts. I wrote down every single graph. If you didn't read it, that is on your fault. I said nine issues. It was written in page 113, paragraph A, graph C, with the, whatever. So, what? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm at I'm the so, end I'm of sorry. my rope. Sean, are you surprised? I sort of why, am. Why are yes. you surprised? No, Marvel, I'll tell you why. Marvel has been an ongoing event train since 2007. Yes, I'll tell you. They why. haven't stopped. No, I'll, so. t- I'll tell you why I'm surprised. I'll, I'm completely honest with you. I shouldn't be surprised. You're right. You are absolutely right. But I'll tell you why I am surprised. All of those endless... I mean, starting from Avengers Disassembled in 2004, all the way to... It's just been one event after another. Yes. But all of those events were part of a... I guess we can be generous and call it an overarching story, right? That's a complete lie. But let's go with it. Secret Wars is being presented as Marvel's crisis. This is the point where we're not going to do the same thing over and over again. How long did it take DC to do a crossover after the Flashpoint reboot New 52? Not until... Um, well, not a huge giant crossover. They have sort of like mini crossover like Super No, no, I mean like line-wide. Oh, years. Not until... Uh, what was it? Countdown. It, no, not Countdown. No, uh, a- Convergence. After, exactly, Convergence. 
That was two, three years? Yes. Listen, mini crossovers between three, four, five titles, that's fine. Right? That's the sort of thing where you can go well, with Well, Batman He's Year talking, Zero, maybe? But all of Marvel's events, all of them were line-wide. Every single damn one of them. Secret Invasion and Fear Itself and House of M and... Access. Oh, God, Access. And what was the one that came? Original Sin. All of those were, like, line-wide and... Then you have Secret Wars. All new, all different Marvel, right? And we said when we talked about the preview how much of a lie that title is, all new, so all different, but you, it's only now becoming clear Why to are me. you surprised then? Because it's not that I'm surprised, it's just I'm exhausted. Sean, you're How like, can you now be planning another event? Secret Wars Sean, isn't even over yet. Sean, I, I'm surprised that you're surprised. You're like a man going to McDonald's and asking, why aren't there any steaks or high premium no, meals? No, no, because... I was, I was willing to give Marvel the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent when they said that after Secret Wars, they would at the very least be doing things differently. Mm-hmm. Because to their, and I'm, I'm not a huge Marvel defender, but to their credit, a lot of the books that they solicited in December, the post Secret Wars stuff, has been atypical. You would not have expected a weird world ongoing. Or Moon Girl. We'll see how long they survive these titles. The survivability doesn't Hell matter. Cat. The fact that they're... Com- well, listen. To a certain extent, that's on the audience, too. We yes. blame the readers for that as but well, because they're not buying these if, books. If some company somewhere proves that Ian Wren was at least partially correct, is Marvel. Because A is an <laughs> oh A, God. and Marvel is Marvel. Marvel is Marvel. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, How 2000s. am I sitting here and saying that DC's practices are better than Marvel's? Can you explain this to me? Well, their books are worse, I, but their practices are better. I can't. This goes back to what I have said so many times, which is that these people have to go. If there was ever any indication that the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics has one trick in his bag and he keeps pulling out the same trick, ta-da! Oh, look. No, no, he has two. He pulled a rabbit out of his no, head. No, he has two. What's the other one? Crossovers and relaunching. And new number They're one. They're the same thing now, though. The well, books always relaunch after the crossover. So they, they pull a rabbit and potatoes out of the hat. It's a potato-shaped rabbit. Or a rabbit-shaped potato, whichever doesn't gross you uh, out. I just... I really am tired. Like, I really... I was willing to say, you know what? I'm not reading Secret Wars, but I'm willing to say, okay, maybe after Secret Wars we can sort of calm down a little bit. Think of different things to do. Try different possibilities. Let these books actually deal with the status quo before you overturn it. They don't see what they're doing here. And I really wish that they would stop and pay attention. Because what's actually happening here is that when they finish a crossover, any crossover, original sin, access, whatever, these crossovers establish certain status quo for certain characters, which are then immediately overturned by the next crossover. Yes. And if you need an example of that, call up Al Ewing and ask him how Loki went for him. This was a book that lasted six issues before being derailed by two consecutive crossovers at the same time. Just like from one to the other to well, the other. Well, that's just continuing the spirit of Loki. It's that's, just That's what's like, happened from Kieran Gill's run. And I think it worked. But that's a different argument. I don't know why they're doing it this way. Because it can't be sales. It can't be sales. Because every time they do this, they are risking the diminishing of the value of a crossover. Like, well, it's what, not, it's, what's the value of a crossover if it comes well, out of the Well, it haven't diminished yet. Secret Wars sells bunch, you know, bundles, loads, cupcakes, whatever term you want to use. Secret Wars, I think, is their best-selling crossover since Civil War. 
I just can't do it with them anymore. I'm sorry. Like, well, I can't... Again, we have to differ between what we don't like to what the market doesn't like. But I can't we, imagine that people who are buying ongoing titles, right? New titles. If you're reading Colin Bunn's Magneto, and then Original Sins comes out, and then Axis comes out, and then Secret Wars comes out, and like these are three titles that happen in the space of 19 issues, you're not actually getting your book. You're getting an advertisement for someone else's book. Well, and maybe you want to read that book, but maybe you don't. Well, because it appears that most people who read Marvel and DC don't want to read Colleen Bunn's Magneto. They want to read Marvel Universe Magneto. And Marvel Universe <sighs> Magneto needs all these crossovers. I just... I don't like it, but I understand just it. Just the announcement had me feeling so tired. Uh, they haven't even finished Secret Wars. The, the last issue has been delayed again. So, like, they're relaunching before Secret Wars is over. So, I don't know what to Se- do with Secret that Wars 2? Return of the Jerry Curl. Gen- Jonathan Hick- no, Jonathan Hickman's version of Secret Wars 2. The Jerry Curl is alive. And is planning to take over the universe. Shall we move on to reviews? Please, let's move on to reviews. This concludes Oh Marvel and... Damn it. Oh Dark Horse. Oh Dark Horse. Okay. Power Cubed, number one from Dark Horse Comics. Written and drawn by Aaron Lopresti. Yeah. Sean, shall you tell them what it's about, or shall I? <laughs> I'm going to let you take this one, because uh, it's a doozy. It's not a doozy. It's actually pretty simple, you know, plot-wise. Uh, what if you had a piece of technology that can create anything that you possibly want? Uh, one, Kenny Logan, he needs to survive his 18th birthday when he discovers that his father has a matter reinterpretation device, and that it has drawn the attention of a Nazi scientist... This is he not- a Nazi? Yes. Okay. He's definitely... Well, he's like one of those, you know, post-Nazi scientists. Oh, one of those. Yes. Okay. And... Uh, like, there's no actual Nazi yeah, regalia. No, no, no. Okay. And he's bumbling sidekicks that plan to rule the world, and they want to take the device from him. That's it. That's the plot. Kenny gets the device, and bumbling okay, evil sidekicks... T-Rexes. Side- yes. Bumbling evil sidekicks try to stop him. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think of this issue? I didn't like it. One of the problems with this type of story is that the protagonist has a get-out-of-anything button, and the whole plot is complicated because he's too stupid to press the right button. (laughs) It's like Johnny Thunder from the Justice Society of America, Mm -hmm. that for a long time, you know, the power that, that he had was that he has a genie that can do anything that he wants. And therefore, the plot has to go to huge controversies for either him to be an idiot as a doornail... Or, you know, to have somebody punch him in the throat, or he swallows something, or the genie misinterprets anything, that, something that he says. Right. If you want an example of how that works, power that is limited by your imagination, give it to someone completely unimaginative, that's Guy Gardner, isn't it? No, but it, it can work in certain <clears throat> genres. It can work, like, if you're a little kid, like, Fairly Odd Parents, the cartoon, mm. lived with this premise for 10 years now, because it's the story of a kid doing, you know, stupid kid stuff. Our hero, Kenny Logan, is 18. There is absolutely no justification for, in the middle of the issue, he gets the device and then the minions of the evil scientist break into his house and aim a gun at his father. Now, I can understand in the heat of the moment why he's running away, but after he runs away, his first thought should be, I can create anything. He creates a T-Rex, like you said. Actually, his first thought would be, I just left my dad alone with two people with guns. No, but, yeah. He should <laughs> turn back. Okay, I can, I'm, Whoops. I, I'm going to summon a huge armor that is invincible to everything, put it on myself, summon a, an army of superhero from comic books, and I'm going to save my father. 
And that's the end of the issue, and that's the end of the series. Because he can do anything and mm-hmm. everything. So you can't present it as anything remotely close to actual action-adventure, because the hero holds all the cards from the first page. Yeah. There's a way in which this premise could have worked, but it's not this one. The, one of the problems that I had here is that there's a pretty substantial pacing issue. You start with the mad scientist whose name is Dr. Cruel. Then you're in Kenny's imagination with his dead mom. Then you meet his girlfriend. That was a very disturbing scene, by the way, with his dead mother. His girlfriend is drawn like she's 16 and talks like she's 5. I don't know what the deal is over there. And then he gets the cube. His mother is drawn like his girl. His mother is drawn like she's 18, which is, is very disturbing. Or possibly accurate. Because if, if this was a vertigo... <laughs> Maybe that's the dad's dark no, secret. No, no, because if this was like a vertigo title, I would assume that there's something dark and hidden behind it. You know, Peter Milligan would have fun oh, with God. this. Oh, God. Peter Milligan would yeah, do so... Peter Milligan would have made loads with this yeah. character, but this one... But- so he's creating all of these robot animals and dinosaurs, and then he gets arrested by, I'm going to quote here, Claire Covert from the Federal Bureau of Paranormal Investigation and Galactic Mischief Freelance. I mean, look, there's hitting the ground running, and then there's reenacting the Mrs. Deagle scene from Gremlins, where she gets on the stale rail and just sends her rocketing up the stairs and out the window. That's what this issue is. It doesn't stop for breath. When it really, really should. And again, she's aiming a gun at him like he doesn't hold the most powerful weapon in the universe. Well, he doesn't seem to know how it works. I mean, no, I say he, he doesn't seem to know how it works. He creates having a te- just created a, like, a menagerie of weirdness. See, this is the sort of thing where I think Lepresti wasn't up to it. If you had had a different writer who says, okay, so the premise is you have a kid who can manifest his imagination. No, it, this could work if he was an actual kid. If he was a 10-year-old, I would buy all of the stupidness because... If he was a 10-year-old, this could be like, it's a good life. Right, Bixby? The, yeah, but... The kid who wishes no, no, you were made of the No, cornfield. but if he was a 10-year-old, I could buy that he can't stop, can't think properly, that right. he's sort of stuck in the excitement. Oh my God, I created anything. From an 18-year-old, even under such a pressure, I would expect a bit more clarity of and understanding of the situation... Yeah. But like you said, his girlfriend acts like she's five year old. He acts like a 13 year old boy who's not sure what's going on with up and down. Which is like, it's not clear to me why, why is he 18? Yeah. Because the mommy issues is like, but if you are already 18 and you're going to college, which he explicitly says, right? He's moving out. He's going to college. It's like, well, then why? You know, even the scientist, Dr. Cruel, it's like something from a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. Which again is fine, but it, Clashes horribly with the rest of the series. See, if this were a Saturday morning morning cartoon, that would work too. But even in that, like, Dr. Cruel, right? But even in that scenario, you know what it reminded me of? Inspector Gadget. He always had stuff popping out of his hands, but who was controlling him? His niece. And she was what? 10, 12? Yes. Right? The limitation on power is supposed to be youth and inexperience, right? Or stupidity. Because Inspector Gadget was an idiot. He was an idiot, but Penny wasn't. Like, Penny was the one who was really in control. If Kenny... If Kenny were Penny, then it would make sense. Because it's like, you have all of this power, but at a distance, right? It's not something that you can control directly. And it's not something that you have total access to. Because after all, all of the bungling that Inspector Gadget would do would be because she couldn't point him at a target and tell him go, right? She had to sort of manipulate situations. That girl had a hard childhood. Yeah, by the way, the doctor is actually is a Nazi. He has a Nazi armband. 
Not only does he have a Nazi armband, he has a smiley face on his chest. An upside down smiley. A, a, a frowning smile. I, yes. I, a frowly. Wow. And then immediately after this, we're like dreams and imagination. So, uh, good intentions, not such a good execution, I would say. I, no, I would, I would actually go a step further and say just like really bad execution. It's funny. This issue is the opposite problem that we have with those boom miniseries because all of those situations, it's always that the issue stops before the actual plot can get going. Here, it's like everything is happening in one issue. The Nazi doctor is introduced and also the cube and also he gets like a sidekick and also this Claire Covert turns up at the end with fish. Is she wearing fishnets? No, she's wearing like what a full that? body leotard armor thing. What even? Who even dresses like that anymore? Aliens. Aliens. Oh, he's an alien. Now though. we need the meme with the guy with the hair going aliens. That's, you know, and he has like his Jiminy Cricket. She's wearing some kind of mesh thing. I don't know what yes. that is. So... This issue could have been parsed out into four issues of its own. Start with the Nazi doctor. Starting with Kenny's civilian life would be sort of the cliche in this case. Where you start with the ordinary boy and then he finds the toy and then he's... But it's and, like... And, you know, and the art... The all good. of this crap happening at once. No, no, the art's good. <coughs> no, it's not totally bad. You know, the art's good it, in an old school sort of way. Yeah. You know, for something that sort of invites... Um, a mess, it's a very clear storytelling, and you know, the T-Rex scene is actually rather lovely. Mm-hmm. So I like this. I just think really the problem is with the age of the protagonist. If he was 12 or 10. It's the tone clash. Too, no, though. I would, yes, I wouldn't have any problem. If, if this was specifically, if he was 10 or 12 and it was aimed at kids, if this was like Mighty Match or something, I would buy it, not for me, but I would buy the story as it goes on. I would buy into the story. Yeah, it would be more convincing as a premise, mm-hmm. but an 18-year-old who dreams of trolls and fairies, it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. It could work if he were an introvert, because then it's like, okay, he's an 18-year-old who dreams about fairies and trolls or whatever because he's stuck in his own head. Kenny, in this story, has a girlfriend, going to college, doesn't get along with his dad, big whoop. He's a social creature. So you're telling me that you have this outer life, also, but also this inner life. Also, the dad should have just taken the device for himself and solved the henchman problem because he actually knew what was Right? Doing. What was right. that? And also, what is? why would you give your 18-year-old son, who you don't have a great relationship with, and ultimate, not explain ultimate power? And explain in one of these vague terms of profits from TV shows and old books, like, you must wield the power, like... Here's a Happy device. birthday, son. You're a god now. Yes. What? <laughs> I mean, it really... Okay, This yeah. premise needed another round of editing, I think, and another... Okay. We are episodically image number one. Yes. From Under Mountains, written by Claire Gibson, art by Sloan Luong, with cover and story by Marion Churchland. Yeah, Churchland and Gibson are co-writing. Long is doing the art. Yes. Stunning. Art, I must Stunning. Say. Absolutely gorgeous. Yes, this is started apparently as something that related to the Eight House project. From what I understand, again, like there's no concrete information, yes. but this is apparently set in, in the, the universe world. But not as Eight House for, for some reason, even though all of these stories mm-hmm. are in different parts of this huge world. I don't know why, other than the fact that maybe they wanted to keep this female created by itself because. This is a story about women by women, and if it would be under the umbrella of Brandon Graham, there would be a touch of, you know... He would 
probably get a story credit in that yes. case if it were because I think for example with though the, he does draw the last two pages yeah but that's just yes, sort of yeah. supplementary material I think what would have happened if this had been like Eight House from Under Mountains number one is that because I think Emma Rios's Eight House issues they're going to be you know like story by Emma Rios but Graham gets like some cr- credit or something. some credit yes which you know I mean and Marion Churchland is also getting credit for Eight House yes. but I, for whatever reason okay they want to keep it okay. by themselves which now is I haven't fine. been keeping up with Eight House because I want to read the entire run at once mm. to sort of dig it in so I don't I'll admit that I was a little lost here. In terms of... Well, tell them what it's about. Mm, well... <laughs> yeah. That assumes... Okay, no, no, no. I'll, I'll be fair here. This story is comprised of three parts. The trouble is that it's not clear to me how these things are related. So we start out with this gorgeously drawn scene of magic, right? There's some kind of ritual going on. This shadow assassin is being conjured by an old woman in a mountain tribe. She gives him a knife and she sends him off to do something. Then we meet Elena. And here is where I sort of got a little weirded out because Elena is this princess. Her father is a lord. Her brother is the heir apparent, Marcellus. He is the one who gets to go off and go have and adventures. And her father doesn't want her to have adventures. Her father wants her to get married for political reasons. A, a woman's job is to be married and have children. And she wants to explore. And I'm like, this is a little conventional for Mary yeah, very, very and generic. Gibson. Yeah, that part of the story is surprisingly generic. And it's especially generic and bizarre when you consider this is set in the same world as Arclight? Female knight and well, gender that, fluid. Well, this and the this Eidos and universe, I don't know if it's even the same world, it's like the same universe because the Eidos other series, um, Mirror just, just started, is a completely different genre. It's science fiction story with robots and underwater Well, Brandon Graham claims it's all in the same world. Like, it's not a universe per se, like Prophet, it's more, this is one realm. And it's different aspects of that realm. That's a very, but, di- it's a very strange realm then. And that was yeah. part of the problem with it because... Well, part of the charm though. I'll give you like a specific example of what I'm talking about. We have the introduction of Tova, right? This is the third... Protagonist. Char- the third protagonist who comes in, the third section. Tova comes in and she goes to this old merchant. She wants some ale. And he says, you know, you owe money to this, that, and the third. And someone's going to be sending men after her. And she says, I have a mark. And the merchant says in reply, if you're going to break into the keep, you're a fool. I'm sure that contextually that's supposed to make sense, but I don't know what they're talking about. What does a keep have to do with a mark? What do these things mean? There's a scenario um, immediately after that uh, when Elena's talking to her father. He mentions goblins. He says, mm-hmm. like, the goblins have switched their allegiances. When you say that word, are you talking about goblins or are you talking about the mountain tribe that we see at the beginning of the issue? The witch and her, because something happens well, that we won't spoil, but something happens at the end of the issue to suggest that they're connected. Well, I assume by Mark she means <clears throat> somebody she's going to steal from, because she's a thief. It's written Someone, in a very vague way. Well, and I, the as you know trope would have been a mistake here. I, like, yes. you know, where these characters start talking about stuff that they clearly know. Yes, of course. But, you couldn't put like a two-page glossary at the well, end, maybe, I, or I something. I don't think it's necessary. I think part of the project of Eight House and From Under Mountains and all of Brendan Graham's writing is a bit of a vagueness and learning about the world simply from characters existing in it. Because King City, which we both liked, was completely crazy in its world building, 
without anybody ever stopping and saying, well, what's the city? What's doing area? You just said a guy with a cat. And yeah, the cat but can that's do something that's associated specifically with Brandon Graham. I don't know if in this particular context it works as well because... I'm curious enough. My problem wasn't with the vagueness, really. My problem was, like you said, the plot with the princess is just Very so typical. ridiculously generic. You know, her father says this and... Part of it is... And like her father loves her, but he won't let her out of the castle yes. because her so, value to him is as a wife to some political yes, person. Yes, it's... Again, it's the Action Lab title. Their most successful title is Princeless, which has the exactly the same plot. And I don't know. Maybe they're going to build it into something a bit grander and more thoughtful because they said originally, this is about female fantasy. This is about breaking the rules. So I hope it's going to be more than just, you know... The princess learns independence and her father learns that it's fine. See, I get the feeling that that might be where they're going. Because when this project was announced, it was announced in this is going to be female-based and female-oriented fantasy, which is fantastic. You don't get enough of that. But then it's like, you're not rat queens. Because when you talk about what does it mean for women to be central figures in the fantasy genre... That requires them to act in different functions than is typically seen. And here I get the feeling that this might end up being one of those stories where in the next issue she's going to dress up and sneak out of the house. And then well, she's going to find all yeah, this but, stuff. But, but that's why I like the fact that... Very the, typical. Yeah, but that's why I like the fact that Tova has some chunk of the issue. That's why I like the fact that we But start, how is Tova any different? Well... Tova is the tomboy archetype that we all, again, and it's like we, so and we, familiar. And the witch that we start with, that we don't know anything about. But the fact well, that we start with her... The thing with the witch is, one of the problems that I have here is that there's an entire dialogue between Elena's father and his advisor where they're talking about the political situation in the immediate area. And the vole and the goblins and the mountains and the scouts and the, 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 the I, I have no idea what they're talking about. But one of the possibilities that occurred to me was when they're talking about the goblins, I don't know why I made this association, but I thought, is he referring to the witch? So I, then I don't think so. So they call their own people goblins. That might be interesting. Like well, that's not typical. Well, I, I, I don't think because there are so. no goblins in stereotypical fantasy yeah, monsters. Tolkien goblins in Eight House. That I've seen yeah, so but, far. Yeah, but they're, they're playing on the thing that it's a big fantasy world and we just, maybe we don't see the goblins. Now, I like But this. if there are goblins, that makes it even more cliche. Well, because, you know, well, we don't know what they look like. No, listen, I'll tell you what they look like. If there are goblins here, they're short, they're green, and they're ugly. Uh, not necessarily. Umbral did the same thing. Yeah, but this isn't Umbral. This is... No, but... Because it, of furniture, because like, because look of at the Florian, archetypes that keep repeating. Well, the archetypes, yes, but... The only archetype we see here, yes, it's a very old one, it's a very used one, but I'm okay with it for the first issue as a grounding, because like you said, the rest of the issue, plot-wise and structurally-wise, is very out there, so it's almost like they're saying, well, we have all these big ideas and strange world-building, we need something to ground the readers, otherwise they would just bounce off. I'm giving this the long shot. I'm going to stay so for am I. I'm going to stay for the whole of the first arc, however long it's going to be. And even if I don't like everything that they're doing, I like enough from the first issue for the art alone, which is spectacular. And for the presentation, we said Brandon Graham is doing the last two pages. I just love the final image of the huge unknown, you know, opening in front of you, the whole world, and you're so small, yeah. and you don't know what you're going to get. 
I'm in for that. It's not as successful I... as I wanted it to be. Exactly. Like I, would yeah, have... I really hoped for you know something grand. Yeah. But I'll take it. Because at its core, there's nothing wrong with traditional fantasy in itself. Like the fact that these tropes are tired and old does not mean that they cannot be used effectively. I'll admit to being disappointed because Eight House has had the impact that it has had because it's trading on the idea of Brandon Graham is going to do all these crazy things and he has all these co-writers and they're going to do like things that you have never seen before. And to be fair, Arclight, what we saw of it when we reviewed it with that Yoshitaka Amano aesthetic going on, delivered. And here it's like we're starting from a much more familiar point and I feel like I am going to stick around for the first arc, but I need Churchland and Gibson to rev up not even rev up but to move sideways if this keeps on going where like you know elena is going to find out what happens to her brother and then she dresses up as him and goes to a tournament and wins and then she meets tova and they have like time boy uh, adventure if this becomes brave meets the prince and the pauper no, it's, thank you. It, yeah it's, it's pointless we've seen both of these stories over and over again yeah i think and i hope it's not going to be that well, time will tell. Well, I will be back for the first arc, and I again like this is something that I want to support, but I need more of a reason to support it. Okay. And our last number one. Yes. Uh, Sean, you'll present this one. I will present this one. This is Wild's End, Enemy Within Number One by Dan Abnett and I N J Colbert from Boom. Yes, it's another Boom miniseries. Now this is a continuation of Wild's End. Yes, which but... was a six issue minis, which I haven't read. Neither have I. I have it, just didn't get around to it yet. But Dan Abnett gets the Calder Award for accessibility. Because I will be completely honest, when I read this issue, I didn't know that it was a sequel until I got to the end of the issue. And then it was like, Wild End, six-issue miniseries, happened a couple of years back. Then again, Whoops. Boom gets the Slap Award for only publishing the collection now. They because wait, they <laughs> they waited until the fr- after the first issue of this miniseries was out to publish the one that came before. Well, that's, you have to admit that's an effective tactic. No, that's like, stupid. Because publish it a month earlier so I can read it and this no two months earlier. Get it all at once. No, I need to decide to pre-order it. Most of the people, after all, order physical form and they're like, "Well, not me. That's well, not, not my problem. Yeah, not you, but <laughs> most people, after all, want to." Need to read the first series to decide to pre-order the latter one. That's stupid. I feel like that's less of a concern because Boom is so good with the print program. Like, there's not going to be a situation where, in fact, now that I think about it, they did the exact same thing with Hex, didn't they? When they published the first arc of the 12 issue series, they published The Devil You Know along with it. But there's never a situation where it's like, Boom, nope, we're out of print. Can't help you. Okay. So, so the plot. (laughs) There's a village that was invaded by aliens, and now we're in the aftermath seeing what comes next. However. Two howevers. Okay, so I want to say about Dan Abnett, this is someone who has been in the industry for long enough to know how to hook readers. And he gets it, and he does it. The story begins... Not by focusing again, like I'm assuming that the original Wild End actually focused on, on the, the alien invasion yes. and on the invasion itself and had protagonists within the village. Not so in this issue. We start off with two 
writers are they science fiction science writers? fiction science writers. fiction writers yes. on a train heading towards the same conference and <laughs> one of them is AG kind of, one of them is AG Wells name spread up and one of them is meant to be I don't know who's Philip the, K Dick maybe? no no it's too early because okay okay no, we well to, we're assuming well, we need to define the world first for the reason because two things a the world is late 19th or early 20th century England yes and B all of the people are talking animals it's one yeah. of it's you know a black Another set district 13 although I have something to say about that but we'll get okay. to it okay so the first miniseries was basically the wind in the willows meets war of the world you know this pleasant village in the early... war of the willows yes the like war it. of the willows okay you know all those funny animals in their comforting homes fighting aliens but when the second miniseries starts this one they're basically saying well the aliens can change form yes and so we have the wind in the body willows snatchers. yes meet, meets the body snatchers cue donald sutherland going Or the puppet masters or what have you yeah so we have these two science fiction authors basically kidnapped by the army who says wait a minute so do you think that it, the other one's Heinlein then If again it's, it's body too, snatchers and... well again it's too early we'll okay, get to it. we'll okay. get to it they're basically kidnapped by the army who needs some sort of expertise on aliens and they say well nobody's actually an expert so we hire well we steal the next best thing and meanwhile the survivors of the first alien invasion in the village are quarantined by the army who keeps everything that happened before and hush hush and mm-hmm. they want to escape to inform the population because they think the army is messing up how they treat it one of the things I liked here is that it all presented from multiple points of view mm-hmm. and everybody acts logically from their perspective because yes. the army is like we can't let anybody know about this we need to sort this out in our way but they're not like evil cackling well we'll take over the aliens and use them as weapons to destroy the world no 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 they're they're acting logically for the army forces the survivors of the first attack are acting normally for these kind of people we don't know what's happened we're being invaded there's shapeshifters among us and the army refuses to spread this information putting everybody at risk we have to get out and the and science fiction the science writers, fiction writers hate each other because of course they do it's such a charming scene <laughs> Because they represent the two edges of the genre. You know, the first one is very scientific-minded. You know, I know what I'm talking about. I did the physics before the story. I, I write from science. And the other is one of these more fantasy-oriented guys who uses science fiction as an idea to discuss philosophical issues and is much more free-thinking and free-minded. And therefore, they hate each other almost immediately. My analogy for who these writers are keeps changing. You're saying this and now I'm wondering, so is it H.G. Wells and Gene Roddenberry? Could be. That would be... There's a meeting of the worlds right there. Yeah, and it's just... It's so charming. Yes. Because obviously they correspond to things that science fiction fans recognize. And right? in 22 pages, they introduce what, yes. seven main characters? Mm-hmm. The two writers, uh, two army people, the, the Brigadier, and the five... Uh, wow, that's even more. It's like ten main characters. Yeah. That's... Extremely, and I think some of them might have been from no, the first yeah, miniseries. No, yeah, all the villagers are from the first miniseries. I, okay, that's, that's I understood. Okay, so that's a huge, huge work. You know, it's extremely economical storytelling. Kudos not only to Abner but to uh, CJN Cupboard. Yes, who does beautiful, stunning work. You know, just the first scene on the train, such an Arcadian moment, and mm. all the characters are presented with enough. details to make them unique without falling into exaggeration of well since they're dogs and cats and whatever I can just yeah. push it all out see that's the thing that gave me a little trouble okay and I know that this is a nit that I pick at often but if you're going to do the 
anthropomorphized animals. It would be nice if there was a reason for it. We three had animals for a reason. Mouse had animals for a reason. Well, the Autumn Lands had animals for a reason. Right? Granville like, had animals a, for a reason. Yeah, does Black Sad? No. No, Granville it had is. it, and District 14 had it, but yeah. they they do a whole huge scientific rant about, you know, parallel evolutions and the rights of well, humans. Well, it doesn't need... No, no, no. I'm not saying that it needs to be presented as plot. I'm saying that there needs to be I, a thematic reason. I don't... Like, I, I disagree. In, in Mouse, for example... Well, there is a thematic reason. If you use what? it as it's a follow-up to The Wind in the Willows, it has to use that to present, like... The ultimate English quiet before the war peace of mind. Yeah, but it's not. This isn't a direct spin-off of the Winter of the Wind. No, no, no. Like but you're starting from. But scratch. they're working from the same Arcadian moment. You know, it's this small village, and the yeah. fact that to populate it with animals and not people is even more Arcadian. You don't have any, literally, any human touch, so it's also very peaceful. You also associate certain animals with certain personalities. And I don't and know... And you want to ask, you know, are they eating meat? Are they eating each other? Oh, meat? that's the Miss Piggy idea, Dylan. Yes. Like, does Kermit eat well, bacon? I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. Have you it's seen, a, have you seen the problem. Muppets relaunch? Not yet. I'm, Miss I'm, Piggy and Kermit break up near hot dog stand. Now, oh, and all I'm asking is, what's in these hot dogs? <laughs> Questions that you should never... Not, should. Don't ask them and don't get answers because well, we don't want to know. Well, because for me, anthropomorphized animals or... Anthropomorphic cars or whatever are just a thing that you do to make it visually more interesting. It doesn't have to have a reason within the story. I think not within the story, but I think that if you're going to do it, well, it's it, it needs to have some kind of thematic. Well, thing. no, no, because no. like for example, one of the things that works really well with fables, yes, is that, and this was something that Bill Willingham does consciously, which is the attributes that you would normally associate with an animal are not true. Like when you talk about a uh, flycatcher, right? So he's a frog, but his personality is not frog-like, whatever that counts, you know, because you have certain expectations when a character is a pig, right? So he's going to be selfish and abrasive and probably gluttonous and, you know, sort of headstrong. Or if a character is a rabbit, they're going to be... T- it's like, you know, Winnie the Pooh, that sort of thing. Yes. You know, if a character is a bear, they're going to be huge and aggressive and angry. And it really works if you want to subvert that, right? So you have... This is one of the reasons Shrek was so oh, successful. Oh, or if you want right? to use it straight as a visual shorthand, you can do it. But when it's a visual shorthand, it's overworked at this point. Of course, the mouse is, like, timid, but... Bravehearted, like Stuart well, Little. Yeah, but it doesn't work here. Like it really this. taps here. Into the- here, the short term <laughs> works enough because Abnett grounds all the characters and make them unique. Yes, as of themselves. So you- for now, yes. Like if it turns out that the fox is like super sneaky, and it's going to be like, well, well, the fox is sneaky. Yeah, but they're we saying he's guess a- that. Well, he is sneaky. They're saying he's a thief. He's yeah, about, but it's sort he of he has like- this great scene about they're treating us like comic criminals, but you are a criminal. <laughs> yes, but it's. <laughs> Yes, but that doesn't mean they should treat me that way. Again, it's not a deal breaker. I still really enjoyed this issue. I am definitely sticking around for this, and I'm definitely picking yeah, up. Yeah, I'm arc. picking up. But the first it is sort collection. of the thing where it's actually it has a lot in common with From Under Mountains in the sense that I wish you guys had tried a little harder to surprise me, just because well, they, you are working well, with such. Familiar don't forget material. again. Don't forget we're reading the sequel miniseries. They assume, and I think for everybody but ourselves. That if you read Wild's End, The Enemy Within, number one, you've read Wild's End. 
And yet, no, it's, it's, but Avnet scripts this in a way. I think that that's the reason that he does all this with the writers, right? It's a way to bring in new readers. Yes. You don't need to read the original miniseries. You, you, don't, you don't need the, to, but you, he assumes <coughs> some of the surprises is worn off. He's not trying to surprise mm-hmm. you with, oh, these are animals, because... What would be a surprise for me if the fox were, like, really dumb? Like a blonde Paris Hilton well, type? And I also think that this point that reversing the type is also... Is it still done. counts for something, I think. I don't okay. know. That's, that's just... For I, again, me, like, of I'm all the point... number ones we had this week, this is definitely oh, the yes. best one. Oh, yes. I would and I'm that. going to stick, stick with this, and I'm going to read the older series. Yes. And I still think of Dan Abnett as, you know, space action guy. And it's... Uh, even he though, still is space yeah, but, action Yeah, guy. but even though he's, he's doing done... doing a new Guardian. Yes, now. but he's done a ton of things other than that. I should read these, because I like his space action stuff, but this mm. is much better. You know, oh. I like his Guardians of the Galaxy. This is better than Guardians of the Galaxy. This is better than Hercules. Is it better? I don't know if it, again because I didn't read Guardians of the Galaxy, well, so I don't know if it's better. It, it's fine. But it's, it's it is different. Yes, and he has done a few things. I think he wrote a couple of prose novels for 2018. Yes, that but were these not were space. Well, no, 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 no. They were because he were wrote they? the Warhammer novels, right? And he wore. Didn't some- he write Nicolai Dante? For the the novels, not ah, the... I uh, have no idea. Bunches. And he wrote a science fiction novel called Embedded about a journalist in space. So hmm. that's a thing that he's doing, but apparently he's also doing this, which is fine. Maybe the space influences come from Andy Lanning. Maybe. That could and be. And now the DNA like, uh, are apart. Yeah. Where is Andy Lanning, anyway? Uh, I, they had a split a few years ago, so I don't like know. Like an actual split, or just I, sort of I like... I know, the rumors at the time were that it was, you know, angry split, but I, I don't know, rumors on the internet. And I really haven't seen Andy like, Lanning, so maybe then... Ab- during sex, or like... I, no, no, maybe then Abbott really carried the weight. Could be. Simon I mean, and Garfunkel without the one that you care about. <laughs> okay, that, that actually sort of... Well... We'll see. Okay, best of luck. I, and then, I we, and then we look around and Andy Lenning won two Eisners and an RV while we weren't looking. And like, no, but oh. if the fact, no, but that would be the thing is like, if you won these and you had no idea, so, like, so how notable could he possibly be? It's not like, uh, okay. Like, and there's Andy Lenning. Who? Arc review? Let's go to the arc review. A I'm, long I'm going time. to, here we go. Okay. <laughs> okay this was a long time I need coming. I to center myself. This, this was a long time coming yes. in so many ways. Sean, <sighs> we will speak about Okay. Sandman Overture, oh, 1 God. through 6. Issue number 1, published 2013. <laughs> oh, Issue no. number, six, publi- oh, no. number 6, published... October 2015. To- yesterday. Two years for six issues. Sandman Overture, written by Neil Gaiman, art by J.H. Williams. Now, as soon as I say J.H. Williams, everyone was like, I'm surprised it only took two years. Uh, you know, we could have been waiting until 2020. Art by, touched by the angels, J.H. Williams <laughs> first. That should be his full name. It's like to be, his, I mean, he has the hands of the angels. One of the best artists in the business, coupled with one of the best writers of the 20th century. There you go. So, a little background. Okay. I don't think it's a secret to say that Neil Gaiman's Sandman is in my eyes at least, one of the best works of graphic literature ever created. Just superb. And for many years, it was both the flagship and the standard, I think, for Vertigo. I don't remember if it was the cause of the formation of the Vertigo line, or that was Swamp Thing, It was the money engine of Vertigo, because... For a long, long time, half of their series were spin-offs of the Sandman yes. that none of you have read. 
Except Lucifer, none of you have read this. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Some of those were quite good, but well, this is not a review of the Sandman universe. We'll be here all day. Because uh, you could always, of course, write it off as gross exploitation. So they went, they got all of these spinoffs about every other character in the Sandman universe had their own three-issue miniseries. Bast, Petrifax, Corinthian. Who are they? Thessaly had two. Thessaly had two. The Dead Boys Detective had three. Marv Pumpkinhead. Marv Pumpkinhead had a one-shot called Agent of Dream, and it was spectacular. Yeah, Bill Willingham, one of his earlier works. But I will say this, though. The reason is, within those 75 issues of The Sandman, Gaiman really created this very, very rich and complex and full world, right? So much fertile ground for exploration that it is no surprise that it led to all of these spin-offs, right? Mike Carey's Lucifer, The Dreaming. They had writers, uh, Caitlin Kiernan came in, Darko McCann, Ed Brubaker, Alyssa Quitney, Peter Hogan, Bill Willingham, Jill Thompson, everybody having a party at the Sandman house. And it's all, I can't speak to the quality of it because there will come a day where I will have the Sandman reading experience and just do all of it. And then you will die. It will be if, an overdose. If I die, I'll die happy. Maybe I'll die meeting like a Gaiman's version of death. Because she's nice. You okay, know, she's okay. Nice. Okay, but the impetus for this specific miniseries is as follows. Sandman itself ran from 1989 to 1996. And after it concluded, there were certain contributions that Gaiman himself made, like his sort of comebacks. So he wrote two miniseries focusing on death. Two novels, The Dream Hunters, which was adapted by P. Craig Russell, and then uh, Book of Dreams. And then he had Endless Nights, which was sort of like this... A collection ent- of stories. Anthology jam with all of these different artists. But these were all sort of ancillary editions, right? Sort of supplemental material. The thing is, for years afterwards, whenever people would ask, you know, is Neil Gaiman going to come back to Sandman? He would always say in his usual wonderful but cryptic fashion that there was one story he hadn't told. He finally revealed that in Sandman number one, the issue begins with Dream being captured. The reason that he is captured, but his capture sets in motion everything that happens in the series, but the reason that he is captured in the first place is because he has just come out of this battle that has drained all of his energy. He's in a weakened state. He's in an extremely weakened state and we never actually find out what happened. Until now. This is the story of what happened immediately before Sandman number one. And it's cosmic. It is really cosmic. Okay, now... And I will say that I did not expect Neil Gaiman to go cosmic, because he usually doesn't. No, he goes mythic. He goes legendary. He doesn't exactly. go... The, okay, the plot. The plot. Because we've talked around it. <laughs> because the actual plot is pretty simple. A long time ago, Dream, Morpheus, whatever name you want to choose... Had a job to do. Had yes. a very important job to do. And that is to allow a star to die. So the first thing I want to say before we go into description of the plot is that this miniseries, unlike Wild's End, is not new reader friendly. No, in no, any... no. It assumes that you know the Sandman from within and without. Exactly. Because not just the trivia, but the main plot is dependent on you remembering that in Doll's House, the second arc of Sandman, Morpheus encounters a dream vortex. And he makes a reference to the fact that the last time he faced Dream Vortex, he did not take action and horrible things happened, right? This was Rose Walker. 
yes. who would become a major character. Or it, later on. it depends on you knowing who Daniel is. You yeah. just need to recognize <laughs> the guy. They don't Daniel's name cameo. Him. They just recognize, you know, that guy in no, white. They call him Dream. Yes. But it's like, so wait, wasn't understand. he just yes. this guy? What's okay, so on? Dream had to do a very <clears throat> important job. Yes. He didn't do it. As mm-hmm. opposed to anything that we know about the Dream from the original Sandman, who is very. His whole world and his whole life is basically, I need to do this task. Yeah, I have responsibilities. That's yeah. his life. So that, the old dream apparently didn't have that attitude. And therefore, he didn't do something which sets in motion the end of anything and everything that ever was and will be. Mm-hmm. The universe is ending. Crisis on Infinite Sandman's. Yep. And literally, Infinite Sandman's. Because <laughs> apparently, in the, in the pre-times of the series, there were many dreams. There, there were many... Aspects of the whole yeah. of dream. Well, it's not entirely clear whether these are all aspects of the same person or like dreams from different timelines converging. Yeah. In the, like it's not entirely clear. But again, that's the sort of thing that it's mythological. Yes, you just go with it. And so, dream goes out <coughs> on a quest with a girl named Hope, mm-hmm. naturally, and a cat version of himself, sorta. Uh-huh. And he has to, you know, go on a quest. And he has to ask his father for help and his mother. And he has to go to the City of Stars to fix, you know, undo that which was not done mm-hmm. or whatever. The actual story itself is very slight because when you describe the plot, you know, he has to go from A to B, meet C, take object D, ask for help from D. It's, it's like a computer quest. And then everything is fixed. Sort of. Yes. And then all but... around this, you have... Gaiman and J.H. Williams basically build a prog rock opera. Because, yeah, that's it. Because I'm reading this and... That is it. The story is simple, but the scale is so huge. And you have J.H. Williams drawing and therefore the art. Every single page. I don't know how people read this in comicsology. Reading this on the computer was a no. bit of a torture. No, no, no. It's very easy in comicsology. I'll show you. When you okay. have like one of those uh, double page spreads... It just goes across the entire desktop like this. Yes. You can adjust the size, focus in, focus out. Because it's very really, easy. The, uh, no, but I think... And there's no seam like yeah. in terms of the page. Yes, I think this is one of the things that would really only work in either the actual issues, where you can read all the details as you look at them and don't have to zoom in, zoom out. Yeah. Or in a very, very finely printed hardcover. I can't imagine this in hardcover no, format. No, no, it would be need to be a great, great, you know, very expensively printed hardcover. The seams would have to be perfectly printed. Yeah. Soft cover version of this. If you want to put this on the shelf next to your Sandman collections, I don't it know would look horrible. It. Yeah, because it's the, like there, in the first every, issue you have the double page. Not even the, I think this is a triple page spread. No, it's like it's no, very. It's a double. Is it J.H. Williams, Williams can do in a double what most people need 18 pages to do? Because I'm trying to imagine if you were to open this up as a hardcover where it's mm. bisected in the middle by the spine, right? Yes. Maybe You're ruining the artwork. Maybe they're going to do it like 300 and every page is going to be a, Every page is going to be a double. But then that would it would have to be oversized. Because yes. the thing is, it's not just that the art is there, but there are speech bubbles. Yes. So you would have to print them in such a size that you can see who's speaking. But also that it's not like the size of your coffee it's, table. It's, it's a very mighty work. And if you want to buy this for the art alone, you can do that. Oh, because yeah. again, I'm not that guy. Yes. But for this, I'd say do it. Because J.H. Williams has always been a spectacular artist. This is one of the things that take his considerable talents near their limits. <laughs> this, the only thing that's comparable to this is Promethea. And not even any Promethea. The final issues of Promethea where oh, every single page was yeah. part of a giant mishmash poster thing mm-hmm. 
And it's not only that and he's this a, makes a lot more sense than Promethea, I have to say. <laughs> well, it's not only that he's a great artist and a great page designer. He's like a chameleon because certain characters are drawn in the style of different artists mm-hmm. to signify how different they he's are. Got some Kirby in here, yeah, some Kirby, some 1970s stuff in the middle. It's just amazing. Yeah. You, it's an art book. It's literally an art book. You just well, look at this. I think that might be doing the script a disservice. No, no, no because no, no, on no. the one hand. While it is fair to say that the plot in terms of like events, right, uh-huh. specific things that happen after each other might be a bit thin, that was never the thing with Gaiman. It's like if you think about The Wake, right, the last Sandman book. Yes. What's the plot? There is There's no a plot. funeral. Yes. People meet, they talk. Now, but it's one of the most emotionally satisfying. Yes, but here's the problem as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. because of the way uh, Neil Gaiman writes, usually, which is, like you said, all the big things happen, but they're grounded in characters and emotional issues. Here, it's the art is too cosmic. J.H. Williams is drawing for Grant Morrison, for Ellen Moore, and now Neil Gaiman is writing him, and it's a bit of a clash, because it's like this rather simple story, and, you know, the characters are gods and things, but very human and they sort of stuck in the middle of this, everything is gigantic, and everything is always bigger and bigger, and by the time I reached the final issue, I was a bit tired. I was just, you know, another huge spread, and another giant fall, and a black hole, and stars exploding, and the whole universe, again and again, for six issues. And I was like a bit, can I have a, you know, a smaller (laughs) scale artist? Can we have a single page, you know, just... Two people just sitting without all the background being all of the universe in a panel. I just a bit. This one, it's it's beautiful, but it's like I said, a prog rock album. It's a bit too much. You cannot. I don't know if that's true though, because can you can you listen for free ELPs albums one after another, or even God forbid at the same time? No, you can't. That would destroy you. I I see. And I think Sandman came close to destroying me. See, the disagreement that I would have here would be that the strength of the art is in matching visually speaking, right? It is showing you what another writer might have left for abstract. Because you remember, like, there have been moments in the Sandman series where the art wasn't up to the script. Yeah, the first one. No, the kindly ones. Well, I didn't like the kindly ones. In general, so, you know. It was the big finish, right? Yes. It was the, the destruction of the dreaming. It was dream coming up against the enemy that he had created, right? The furies have been unleashed. It's the apocalypse. All, all of these things happening. And the artist who, whose name I do not recall at the moment, it was a very sort of stick figure, almost like Tim Burton sort yes. of thing. And that was a situation where the story had so much emotional strength, but the visuals didn't match. Here... Gaiman is telling the story of a universe descending into insanity. And you have, for example, these huge double-page spreads where death is taking entire galaxies, right? Because everything is falling apart. And Williams is appropriate with the big moments because he sells the gravity. But I think also when there is the smaller moments, when Dream is talking to Hope, for example, yeah, she's but going is it, her family. Is it a small moment? Because it can, it's not allowed to be a small moment because it's all not even grounded. It's all just presented as part of the universe-ending gambit. No, but even it, before that, when, when, the Dream, whole when Dream is on me, his way to meet time. So along the way, you have the scene where he's talking to 
Hope and Hope asks if she can ride on the cat Morpheus. Mm-hmm. And he's like, don't pull my fur. And it's a, it's a small, it's not a double page spread. It's just like a, a one panel. He, he manages to sell, you know, the look on her face when she's with him. Yeah, and, but then she became the representation of all the dead souls in the universe. Yeah. And I'm like, it's a bit too much. You're overdoing. And it's not, it's a very good series. I don't have the same attachment to sentiment that you have. My first Vertigo was Transmetropolitan. So I think <laughs> it's shaped our, our reading yeah. experience and our comics fandom has been shaped yeah. by a and, and I will, you know, I will admit that openly, absolutely, you know, Sandman was a formative experience for me in terms of comics. And it is very, very difficult for me yes. to be neutral. But I do think... For I've ex- read for Sandman example. a bit too late to... For it to become formative, I appreciate yeah. large parts of it, but I think some parts of Sandman simply don't work. Like, but the whole of Kindly ones for me didn't really work because it was too long for t- like this. I liked it, it was for the bit, plot, not for, I, the yeah, for me. The Kindly ones was a bit too long for telling something pretty simple. And in any, I think with the Kindly ones specifically, if it had been any other arc. Mm-hmm. It would have been shorter, but because it's the big finale and yeah. it ties up everything, and, I, I, and even Game of You, I didn't really like. I like, <gasps> yes, I did like a Game of You. No, yes, I love the dollar. The How can you like the dollhouse and not a Game of You? It's like the exact and same. You know, no, 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 because you know, it, it came to mind. I understand this. The thing that I like best about Sandman were the short stories, the done in one issues. One of my favorite stories of all time would be the Emperor Norton one. One of my mm. most favorite comics of all time. Augustus, Dream of a Thousand Cats. Ramadan. Uh, Ramadan. When they first announced the movie, I wrote uh, in a movie website that it's never going to happen, but my dream version of a Sandman movie is not a movie about Morpheus. It's an anthology movie taking different directors to adapt in different styles, all of the best short stories. Yeah. And for me, that's the best thing about Sandman is the ones where Morpheus is actually out of the picture where he's just... An observer, or at best, somebody's giving advice on the side. Yeah. Not someone who's directly involved in the story. The actual stories about Morpheus for me were always a bit, you know, take but them the, or leave them. But that's the thing with the short stories, for example, is that at the end of the day, I mean, one of the reasons that I find Sandman to be such a masterful work is because even the short stories in which Morpheus himself is not a central character, right? Emperor Norton, Augustus, yes. all of that. Hobgalding. Those stories still end up tying into the well, larger yeah, thread. They, because, they, for example, with Emperor Norton, that's where you see his rivalry with Desire. Yes, yes. Right? They, they end up tying. Yeah. But for me, the tie doesn't improve them. I don't think uh-huh. that Emperor Norton becomes stronger simply because, oh, well, and the kindly one, this pays off. I don't think Hobgalding's story becomes stronger simply because he appears in the funeral at the end. Or appears as part of the world's end, uh, career of stories. It helps, but it's not essential. And for me, Neil Gaiman always you didn't like worked. Season of Mist? I liked it, but it's not my favorite. Again, my favorites mm. are the short stories, and okay. it's the same with all of Neil Gaiman's work. I prefer his short stories over his long. I don't even like American Gods. For me, it was long and overbearing. The same with Neverwork. Uh, um, mm. I think because, in a way. I, Neil- I will admit that his short stories are. Better because he does that thing that the best short story writers do, which is that he knows how to boil it down to, you know, in two pages, yes. he'll have you on the floor crying. You know, he can do that. And in certain ways, I'm not a huge fan of Neil Gaiman's post Sandman work because it's almost like Sandman was his masterpiece from the get go and everything else was a bit of a trying to not redo it because he's not trying to do the same plot over and over again, but the same. 
feel of it, the same kind of mystical fantasy grounded in real world. And, what was you know, the next go- big thing that he did after that? Well, though? no, novels. After the- no, 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 I mean in comics. Because I'm thinking comics, now, nah, 1602? Yeah, that's it. He was did- that the next? He did Ooh. small stuff. He did, you know, short stories for action comics. He did uh, his, his, uh, the Green Flame thing. Uh, Black Orchid was before or after? I think it was during, actually. During, yeah. Well, it, Sandman... <laughs> it ran for by, 75 issues. By the time Sandman was over, <laughs> he basically became an, a writer of books, I think. Yeah. And he only returned to comics to do 1602, which was not very... Not horrible, but not very good. Yeah. Well, also, 1602 only really existed to get the legal funds for that whole... Yes. So, for me, you know... I wonder if the test, then, is Miracle Man. To see if he still has uh, it. We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see for yeah. Miracle Man. Exactly. Like if we'll wait, like we waited for this one, right? Because what has been assumed for all these years is that he never actually wrote the Dark Age, right? Like the last arc of Miracle Man. He knew, like he had outlines, I assume, but he never actually had the script. So I guess that would be like if you want to know if Gaiman still has it, although. You know what? Because I look since, at Sandman since Overture. Since we've opened this up, I want to talk about this because sure. it can be ignored. Like we said in the first chunk of the review, first issue 2013, last issue now. <laughs> and, and I'm sorry. No, no, you're laughing. We, we read this now in Ooh. digital, but some people were buying it on the stores from where, the shelf. Where did I put my number one? Yeah. I moved no, two no, houses no, since then. No, no, no. Yes, it's not funny. <laughs> I'm it's so, a little funny. No, no, it's annoying. And if this was like Mark Miller, you would be annoyed because I'm sorry, you promised to your readers a certain experience and basically you've taken their money and you've, you haven't given it to them. This story, not only is this meant for reading in one go. So even the original bi-monthly publication order was a bit too much. As it is published as it was, it's an insult and a slap in the face for all the readers. And I'm sorry, Neil mm. Gaiman, you whoa, had twi- whoa, 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 No, no, whoa, you whoa, had whoa, whoa, whoa. Neil Gaiman and J.H. Williams. is J.H. Williams. You had- and you know it's J.H. So Williams. So don't do it. You had don't 20- blame Neil Gaiman no, for no, this. No, no, I'm sorry. You had 20 years. And you're Neil Gaiman. If you said, well, J.H. Williams didn't finish DC, please hold. Because if there's one person who can say to DC Comics, don't do this, and they won't do it, it's Neil Gaiman. You remember when but- Cornell wanted to use death in action comics... He had to crawl to Neil Gaiman's on his knees, and Neil Gaiman had to go all over the script and approve or disapprove whatever she said. Yeah. And DC basically waited for him to approve this. So I'm sorry. I hold Neil Gaiman at least partially responsible. He waited 20 years. He could have waited one more year and said, well, let J.H. Williams finish. He could have waited two more years if necessary. But deciding to say, well, the first issue is done. We can just publish this. No. I'm sorry. Had he ever worked with J.H. Williams before? It doesn't matter. It he kind should... of does. No, I'll no, t- no, no, I'll no. Tell he you should why. know. I'll he tell should you why. know. From the point of readers, right? As people who we know these creators, we know their bibliography, we know their history. Do you blame Greg Rucka for what happened with Batwoman? It's like no, because when you know that when you're getting J.H. Williams, you are going to get delays. I don't. These, these can be short delays. They can be long delays. No, no, I don't blame Greg Rocca because Batwoman is wholly owned by DC Comics and DC Comics ran the project. When it comes to San- San- Sandman, is, is no, not no, no, no. Sandman, Sandman is owned by DC Comics, yeah. but it's one of those cases where they wouldn't dare anger uh, Neil Gaiman because Neil Gaiman is bigger than most of DC's management right now. They need him; he doesn't need them. And it's a fact that you know we had before Watchmen. Exactly, that we was have his- we have the Dark Knight Returns too. Mm-hmm. Nobody does a Sandman spin-off without Neil Gaiman saying yes. 
I understand yes, what you're I, saying, I assume, but I assume, you're saying that Gaiman knew J.H. Williams would be late before I, they started working I'm not working saying together. he knew he would be late. I'm saying he should have known. How? Should, because he should have looked up the credits of the work and say, well, this J.H. Williams, which I want to work with because he's a spectacular artist, has published 10 issues since 1999. Maybe it's because... But when you're talking about Sam... He chose him, right? He chose J.H. Williams. Yes. But when so talking, he should know. But when you're talking about Sandman specifically, it's like Bone, right? There are no single issues of Bone rolling around. When people talk about, you want to read Bone, you either go to the one-volume collection or you go to the uh, Scholastic And, and again, Bone... These I, are They exist as books, right? And there's no doubt in my mind that while DC released this as a six-issue miniseries, and that might have been a mistake, this might have worked a lot better as a graphic novel. If it had come out in one... They call it Book Zero, and it goes it's on meant the shelf. Re- it's meant to be read as a graphic novel. Yes. No, no doubt about it. I absolutely agree. And, and, I, and I had not read this until the last issue yeah, came and out. See, and it's fine to say, well, in the future, nobody would care. Yeah. Like, nobody cares right now that, it's, it's that uh, Joss Whedon's X-Men was horribly late, but... I'm sorry. No, I'm you're not... comparing... Like, I, I get it. You, you, but you were comparing this, for example, like, if this happened with Mark Miller, I'd be furious. First of all, I wouldn't be furious. I would just laugh. Because, you know, Mark Miller... No, but also, I think Mark Miller was delayed on something, wasn't he? What was the one that he did with Frank Quitely and it, like, quietly disappeared? Just into... Jupiter's Circle. No. Yes, Jupiter's no. and Authority. They an authority, that was it, where he teamed up with Frank Whiteley. They got one issue out, the, the first, first issue of the, of the first, last arc uh, yes. of Miller and Quiteley, and then Quiteley, like... Often disappeared. He went on a retreat to whatever, and then they brought in, like... Carrie Nord to do a fill-in arc. That's the one. And the, the arc in the middle of the other, it was like a box inside a box inside a box. It was Inception before Inception. When Mark Miller puts out a series, it is not your automatic assumption that it goes on the bookshelf next to Watchmen, right? It is not the instant classic that the reputation of the series has. Well, if he did Wanted 2, you wouldn't be like, well, he did Wanted 2, didn't he? No. There's no Wanted 2? No. So I'm mixing that up with the movie? Yes. Wait, so what was Wanted 2 based on? Nothing. There was never oh, Wanted okay. 2. Oh, okay. I got it mixed up with, with Kick-Ass. I got it confused with Kick-Ass. No, what I'm, what I'm saying is, okay, in the future... And nobody would care, and everybody would have the whole Sandman library on shelf or on yeah. the computer. But I don't live in the future. I live in the right now. And saying, well, all your sins will be washed away in the rain, well, that's true about just about anything. Most of the bad decisions or bad publications that's going on right now will be forgotten. But I'm talking about the here and now, and the here and now is that, I'm sorry, friends of mine who ordered issue number one and expected to read the whole... Six issues after 12 months, because it's supposed to be bi-monthly, have waited way too patiently yeah. and no, have gotten I... nothing, you know, not even a proper huge apology. Oh my God, the six issues are worse. And the first page should have been, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. And also get this issue for free and Neil Gaiman will kiss you in the mouth. It comes down to a question of expectations, information, and just like comparatively speaking, Ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk. Was delayed for how many years? Forever. Three exactly. years. All right. And in that case, no one could have guessed, right? Because it was a delay. I don't even remember why it happened. but Because it, the writer was, a, was Damon Lindelof, right? Yeah, but something happened with Lindelof specifically where he just sort of like, he never handed in the last script well, and be- just left. Because like most TV writers, he treated comics as a vacation from his exactly. real job. You know, Alan I, Heinberg, the yes. exact same thing. And, you know, people were pissed at him too. The thing is... And I know that I sound like a horrible elitist snob when I say this, but 
Alan Heinberg and Damon Lindelof and Kevin Smith are not Neil Gaiman. I'm sure, again, because I wasn't, to be blunt, I wasn't, I couldn't read <laughs> when, when Sandman first started coming out. I wasn't reading it at the time. But I'm sure that there were delays within the series, too, because he was going from artist to artist to artist to artist, and, like, P. Craig Russell comes in in the middle. Well, it's like 70 issue in nine years. That makes sense. Yeah. If, if Sandman... If Sandman was published... It would have been five. No, but if Sandman was published, the regular Sandman was published in the timescale of Sandman Overture, we would still wouldn't be finished. <laughs> it's like, what we would be in the first the, arc? We would be right now in the middle of a game of you. Or, you yeah. know, no, World's End. You know, 20 years later, we're at World's End. 10 That's years fair. from now, we would reach the kindly ones. It is a level of work, I think. That allows, first of all, if you thought that J.H. Williams was going to submit anything on a bi-monthly schedule, you were the fool for the start. I okay. S- that I is s- the first thing. I assume he took a you year did- off to do this. From who? He did just, he was writing, uh, um, and drawing, I think. Bat no, Woman. he was writing at Bat- the time. He was writing Batwoman, but not drawing it. There was someone else. He was writing. doing something else. I know that he was. He and was- it's like, he didn't take a year off. He didn't go anywhere. And I don't know how long Gaiman they has been sitting on the script. They never said, by the way, that, that Gaiman had written the script in advance. I don't know. That's even worse. The most obvious comparison comes to mind? New X-Men. Grant Morrison's New X-Men. The original plan was for him to stick with Quietly the whole time, right? Yes. And they got rid of... Well, they didn't get rid of him, but sort of like, you know, he... Quietly was the regular artist on two issues. And then what was the name of... (laughs) Igor Corday. Poor Igor Corday. And you know what? It's not even his fault. No, it's not Igor Corday's fault. It's Marvel's fault. But Mm -hmm. when you read that trade of New X-Men and you see Emma Frost with the cellulite hanging out of her middle because that's how he drew her and like she has... Her nose is like all the way up in the middle no, of the forehead. Ego Corday is the reverse, J.H. Williams, because J.H. Williams takes four months to do an issue and it looks beautiful. Ego Corday, four hours and it looks no, like no, crap. No, no, because, you know, he, no, no, I'm, I'm pinning Ego Corday. That book ruined him. He was forced to draw an whole issue, drawing and inking by himself over a weekend. Yeah, there and, was... it, and it looks horrible because obviously it would look horrible. Nobody could make this look good. Jack Kirby couldn't make this look good. But in that situation, what everyone said at the time was we would have been okay with the delay if Quietly had come back. Yes, but we would be even more okay with professional giant publishers. This is sure. not Bone. This is not a self-publishing artist shopping his wares around. This is the biggest, one of the biggest publishers in the business, working with the biggest writer in the business, working with one of the biggest <laughs> artists in the business... Can't you be professional? I'm sorry. I'm not saying delay or, or produce subper material. I'm saying you're a professional. Act like one. Produce what a professional produces for the professional money that we've given you. You are not a first-time artist or a first-time writer on a first-time job. I am not asking for too much. I really am not. I am asking for the same standards I would ask from a TV show. Hey, when I get a new season of The Wire or whatever... They produce these on time, and it looks great. And nobody's saying, well, in order to produce a better season of this TV show that we've been producing for the last three years, you're going to have to wait four years. How long did you wait for Young Justice Season 2? I didn't, because I didn't like well, it. Well, if you had, okay, you would have waited. The one thing that you can catch me on being a hypocrite is Venture Brothers, because that's been... Oh, God! Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, see, that's I mean, where I'm a hypocrite, but, you know, do as it, I say, no, not as I do. It, it's, not, it's not a question of hypocrisy. It's a question of... There are certain situations in which I completely agree with you that the desire for professionalism trumps 
any artistic merit. It doesn't need to try. And there are situations where it's reversed. It doesn't if need this to... had come out as a graphic novel, I think on the one hand, it would have been received maybe more favorably. Yes. In terms of the delays, like if, if the graphic novel had come out now and there had never been any miniseries beforehand, then it would be fine. Whether there was a financial reason for breaking it up into a miniseries, well, yeah, because know. you can make, make them make more money. You sell you sell people the single issues, and then you sell the same people the graphic novel. The big hardcover sit on your shelf looks lovely. Possibly an omnibus, and not an omnibus, uh, an absolute version. Yeah, because there are absolute versions Ooh, of Sandman. Geez, absolute Sandman order would look amazing. Would look Ooh. ridiculously beautiful. Blown up David yeah, Williams artwork. Geez. You take you put it on your wall. You know, that's, yeah, that, that yeah. is poster-level artwork. So, so all of my criticism of this, yes, a worthwhile work, but, again, like you said, for Sandman fans only. It's not the first... Uh, it's not Sandman Zero. You need to read all is, of... No, 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 no. no. It is Sandman Zero it, in the sense that it's book zero. Yes. But because it functions... We didn't even talk about the fact that this book exists. It passes what I call the prequel test, right? And I think we've mentioned it in a couple of episodes where when you're dealing with prequel material... The golden rule is don't answer questions nobody was asking. I did not need to know what Darth Vader was like as a whiny teenager. Didn't I would have been po- perfectly happy never finding that out. I hate sand. It gets everywhere. In the cracks. I didn't need to know that he said that, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. So here, Gaiman absolutely answers questions that people were asking. Like you finally find out who Eleonora from a Game of Thrones, a uh, Game of Game of Thrones, Game of a Game of You. Wouldn't Game of Thrones be so much better if Neil Gaiman wrote it? Never mind, that's another discussion. Um, so it is absolutely a story that rewards people who read the core series first. So in terms of content, it's book zero. In terms of when you should read it, it's book eleven. Yes, like that's the that's the, that's the way it'll sit on our shelves. Yeah. And it will sit on our shelves, you know. This Damn is straight. Th- this could have been Sandman seventy six, you know, seventy six through eighty whatever six six issues, right? It could have been. And having read this, it's sort of like picking at that scab of why can't I have more Sandman? And then, but because I don't want Neil Gaiman to do the same well, thing. I don't think it's super necessary. Like, if you didn't read these and you only have the regular Sandman mm-hmm. series on your shelf, it's fine. You know, Sandman. As a story, stand on its own. Yes. You don't, you don't need this, but it's nice to have this. I take that a step further. I'll, I'll tell you why. Okay. The, the way that he sets it up, there are all of these little questions that he doesn't answer. And within the context of the series, that much is fine, right? Like when Dream, in the original series, when he talks to Rose Walker, and he says, you're a Dream Vortex, I have to kill you because the last time I didn't finish the job and... It didn't end well. And you're like, well, okay, there's a story there. I don't necessarily need to know what it is. But if Gaiman is going to tell that story, then I need it. Because I remember, like, in A Game of You, when Eleonora shows up at the end, it's like, oh, it's this woman that he felt... What? Who is this woman? What? What's her deal? Why was she sitting here all this time? And, and because, you know, Dream has this string of human lovers, right? Yes. But you know about... Thessaly, you know about Nada? Yes. Like, you you meet these women, you know who they are. This was one character where she sort of just, like, pops up out of the ether, and she's like, hello, goodbye. So if this is the miniseries that purports to answer, like, who is Eleonora? It's, a, it's taking a loose thread, 
and weaving it back into the tapestry. And in that sense, I would say that because it's Gaiman, because if you believe him, because he's a storyteller and they lie, if you believe him that this was the story he always wanted to tell, then it is book 11. And it does go up on that shelf. Okay. So that was Sam Overture. And that was this that, that was 30 minutes of Sean gushing over the smorgasbord. <laughs> and this was the smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Andre. Until next time. Bon appetit.